Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wildo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is little old me, Matt Freeman, and this is my co-host who looks up at me with eyes that flash, Scott Daly. Eyes that flash? Are you breastfeeding me in this scenario? It's parahumans. Powers are wacky. Gross. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wildo's world of urethra bugs making me cry, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. The battle against Teacher reaches its climax as we set up shop in some of the worst minds parahumans has to offer. Then, Path C claims its first victims as Byron is wounded by an explosion and Ashley is killed by being too much of a badass for her body to handle. In the end, Ashley's sacrifice saves the day and the battle is won, but it's Path C so Teacher escapes, promising that when the day comes, the heroes will wish they sided with him. Ominous. Matt, what did you think of these two chapters and this entire arc? Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, the I just wish that someone who isn't familiar with the story could listen to th- that intro and hear <laughs> urethra bugs juxtaposed with making you cry. Um, I don't it, just it's but it's the magic of parahumans. Yeah, um, I mean these these were great, like. Uh, we've said many times that one of Walbo's fortes is the ability to very quickly get you into the head of, of very different kinds of people. And in these two chapters, we switch point of view several times and we get in the heads of several different characters. And each of them is really given uh, what I call the Wildbow treatment. In fact, when we were talking earlier, I just offhandedly referred to it as Wildbowizing the characters. Um, <laughs> And, and trusted you to get what I meant. Yes. Um, and, and so that for me is one of the most fun parts of this chapter is, is the, the fact that we so rapidly get these wonderful tours of the minds of these horrible creatures. Um, and then, of course, setting that aside, um, just these are uh, some of the most, you know, intense and, and um, significant chapters in the story because frankly the one of the most significant events in the, in the whole story up to this point occurs yeah. in, in these chapters yeah it's the death of one of our major characters um yeah you know i think everyone was pretty you know knocked back by vista's death that turned out to not be a death uh but this is way bigger than that um in the context of the story i know people have a lot of attachment to vista as a character but in the context of the story ashley's death is huge and yeah. uh, it's emotional. It's going to be a tough conversation to have. I, I told you I, I broke down a little bit while just writing the part of the script that I have to now recite uh, as we get to that part. But um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. I mean, there's there's some stuff that I want to pay attention to here. Some some different things that these chapters do. I mean, just like structurally, the fact that we've broken away from our protagonist for three chapters in a row, that the the entire conclusion of this giant battle and, and this whole kind of teacher sub arc of the story, um, or at least for now, ends, you know, 
not with our main character, with different characters in interludes that are character hopping. And and really, I think we're going to spend some time when we get there really diving into that concept and, and that the choices there and what we think the book is doing with them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, um, I think we're also going to have a lot of stuff to say about the thematic stuff that this whole arc has been doing and that these chapters are doing in particular. Yeah. Um, uh, in fact, I think one of the first things that we say about the chapter is going to be referencing the themes of this arc. Um, but before we get into talking about the chapter, we do have uh, some, some quick bi- announcements. Some business. Some business, yeah. So um, we at Doof Media have changed around our reward tiers on Patreon a little bit. So as as you probably know, if you listen, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash doofmedia. And um, basically, the the long and short of it is there is now a new $5 tier, um, which allows you access to an exclusive hangout session with uh, me and Scott and probably some of other, some of the other doofers, yeah. um, of which there are now more than a handful. <laughs> yes. Um, so so that's, that's entirely new. Um, and of course, that also gives you access to the... Um, to the discord and to the uh, recording sessions that we, that we do. Um, and then uh, we've, we've rearranged some of the higher tiers just a bit to make certain things more, uh, more appealing and also more reasonable um, on our end. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we bit a little bit too much off on some of, on some of these rewards. So we're kind of, you know, I think we've been in this, this reward structure for a year now and we've learned a lot of lessons from that uh-huh. year um and we want to continue giving great bonus content we know a lot of people that support us do it just because they like what we do but we want it we want people to feel like they're getting value out of it so i think a lot of our adjusting and changing around was to do to dual dual accomplish that those objectives is giving people value but also doing things that are reasonable and achievable for us yeah um, which so spe- is difficult sometimes yeah specifically what we've done is uh you can still force us to watch a a movie or uh or, or read a short story um at the at the lower uh 20 level but you have to pay the higher tier to make us watch a tv show season yeah yeah which um, i mean I, yeah. I think when we came up with this idea we were not expecting the popularity that people would have with um television seasons yeah. and we had not properly planned for that and that is just it's a lot for us and we want to g- give people the opportunity to still do that because we know some people are very passionate about their anime um but we uh we just we wanted to make a little more achievable for us so that's what we've done um and this is if if you are someone who has donated at this tier in the past and you're like wait a minute what about me um you're fine it is only every person that becomes a patron from uh, i think it was when when would we do it like friday i think it was for some reason, I thought it was like the first, but no, I don't think that's right. It was. Uh, it was. A it wasn't few days the first because it was yeah. supposed to be the first originally, and then someone missed the deadline, Whoops. and that person is me. It's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, and if the five dollar tier and the twenty dollar tier don't appeal to you, the ten dollar tier now gives you access to some kind of um, exclusive written content from me and Scott. Uh, Scott Scott writes um, short. Uh, funny and, and succinct reviews of all the things that he reads in a or reads watches whatever in, in a month um, yeah, and, consumes, and he posts yeah. those yeah consume so um, if you like Scott's brain which I think I think we all do <laughs> I don't um, know if I like my brain he, but sure well so basically like I don't know I, I I really enjoy I really enjoy reading his his short review his short content because um 
it, it, it exposes me to a lot more stuff than I would necessarily otherwise know about. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. And Matt will have some exclusive content on there at that level as well. We're also kind of feeling this. This is a new thing for us as well. So we're feeling it out. You know, we're we appreciate you guys, you know, just kind of testing these waters with us as we go yeah. and try new things. We want to keep keep mixing things up, keep getting you guys new things, stuff like that. So um, you can find out all the information on that. If you head on over to our Patreon account, it'll we've broken the tiers down by bullet points to make it very easy to understand what you get at each tier. Um, and so you can see all that over there. Um, so if you have never supported us before, it's a great time to if you want to shift around your uh, your donation level based on the new rules that's fine too uh just head on over there and uh and see what there is to see yeah all right well uh we won't we won't uh, talk about that anymore we're gonna get on into the chapter now yeah let's give the people what they want 15.y and here we are continuing the pattern from 15.x where we're rotating through multiple villain povs orbiting our particular breakthrough characters as they execute the plan and we start with secondhand uh, this fucking guy <laughs> Uh, continuing our theme of death being liminal and complex rather than final and simple, mm-hmm. he calls the thralls zombies. And I just love the connotations here because colloquially a zombie is a dead person who has come back to life transformed. And by that definition of zombie, there's a lot of zombies in this arc. There's a lot of people come back from the dead. There's yep. a lot of – in this story at large, there's a lot of people who we thought were dead and they're not actually dead. This happens a bunch of times actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, another definition – of a zombie could just be somebody who is mindless or without will, which, you know, is another thing we've seen pretty often in this story. Uh, people whose minds have been changed or controlled against their will. Um, yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think he obviously in, in this instance, he's talking about the latter definition, right? He's talking about the mindless willless people um mm-hmm. and that's what he's he's called them but i love i love the idea of of taking that other meaning of it i love the idea of viewing these people as people that have been killed and are reanimated to serve this purpose like it's it, it's very much setting up this idea that life as a teacher thrall your old life is dead and gone and this is a new different life like it's not being a teacher thrall is not something you come back from right it's not like it's not like your traditional oh, i'm just gonna go work for this guy for a bit and then i'm just done with that yeah um, yeah well i think it is a kind this, of dying yeah i think there's this idea especially in this arc that death is something like a spectrum mm-hmm. and it, it may even go beyond this arc this idea that like having your mind altered having your will stolen is a kind of death and yeah death and and then at uh, farther down the spectrum there's those who have died and then been brought back to life different and changed and not the same person they were at all anymore and and you can never get back to the person that you were um i mean you could even say that a trauma is a little death right it's, sure. it's a little change that you're never quite the same afterward yeah um, and i mean one of the things i love about this is is in this this arc dying where we're talking about these things where you're absolutely right that we're talking about death as not something that's black and white that is more spectrum based um we have cauldron rearing its ugly head again and the 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 moral choices and decision making around cauldron rearing its ugly head and i think those two things combined make for something very interesting here because we're 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 talking about people who made choices and did certain things in order to save the human race from death right but we're we're complicating that concept now it's like it's one thing to value uh you know the the torture of 400 thousand human lives versus the the death of 
billions, right? Mm-hmm. If that's an easy concept. But when you start introducing this concept of death as this this not clear cut thing, it complicates those equations a whole lot. And I think that's one of the things that our characters, I think that's one of the things we're going to see by the end of these two chapters that Contessa herself struggled with and ultimately reached a conclusion on. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that one thing I've never said on the show is that before doing any of these worm shows, um, the the very phrase fate worse than death was uh, absurd to me because I was <laughs> like, I was like, death is obviously the worst thing. Like you can, you can always bounce back from anything that isn't death. Like no matter how bad it is, you can, you can get therapy, you can recover, you can get back to, to, a, to a healthy self. And um, I think these stories have kind of shown me like, not really like, like, yeah, you can probably like, maybe it's true that you can recover from anything. Maybe it's not true. Um, but recover doesn't necessarily mean you're back to who you were. Yeah. Th- that person is dead. This is a new person. So the idea of, of there being fates worse than death, um, uh, that the story has explored, uh, has actually changed my mind on this, uh, this concept quite a bit. And, um, yeah. And, and really made the, comp- the the concept more complicated to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that changes the entire moral calculus of choices too, right? Yeah, like yeah. I mean that 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 complicates things in a way that we don't fully that it's really difficult for people to to, to grasp. And um, I, I I think it, I think it's fascinating, and I love that this arc in particular really helped us dive into that. Yeah, me too. Me too. Cool. Um, I, I do think before we move on from this, I, I think it is very interesting that we see this pushback from final hour to this label of zombie. Right. He says, don't call them that he resists this idea that they're zombies. He resists this idea that they're not people like we see him as a person who is treating this one thrall as as if she's a woman he's coaching her and saying don't aim there aim somewhere else not as just like a mindless zombie that he doesn't have to treat as less than human which is interesting because i'm not gonna sit here and say final hour is a good person we see very explicitly later in this chapter that none of these guys are good people at all but it is interesting that he draws the line there he draws the line at calling them a zombie it's like it's almost as if he's rationalized away what's happening here and that is too close to to ripping down that rationalization i think that's exactly what it is i think that that everybody has to have their narrative where they're the hero of their story Mm -hmm. and uh it goes against his narrative to to make fun of uh, the people they're already abusing yeah um this, and, and yes, you were right. This does not make him a good person. No, not at all. <laughs> um, so I want to pay some attention to the little bits of inner life and perspective that Wildbow shows us as one of the many tools for rapidly giving us a sense of who a character is. Like this quote, secondhand couldn't help but feel that having that much weight on one side of his body would fuck up his back into oblivion. Um, and I just thought that was like, it, it really snaps you in this person's head because it's like the things it makes you aware of the kinds of things he notices and pays attention to. Yeah. Um, it's a kind of funny, uh, it's a kind of funny phrasing also like fuck up his black, his back into oblivion is, um, it just strikes me as an amusing way of, of putting that. Um, yeah. And I mean, it, yeah. it makes perfect sense for a character who has to be so acutely aware of the amount of weight he's carrying on himself just because of how his power works. Right. Um, yeah. So that kind of defines his personality in a different kind of way to where he would notice that kind of stuff. It's really great. I, I agree. Like 
it is, I mean, I'm not saying that no other author does this, and I'm sure there's many skilled authors that do things like this, but it is remarkable how often we see it with these characters. I mean, just in this section, right? Like, yeah. not only that, but you have these little bits here where where he, he mentions zombies were in single file, the buff ones lining up behind the faux condom dispenser. He calls, um, he calls his gas mask or his oxygen mask that he has to wear when he's using his power, his gimp mask, and he calls it that with a little affection. And these are just little, little, little tiny beats that just help flesh out who this guy is like the, his type of personality. And it's, it's, it's really subtle. Um, he does a lot of very similar things with ingenue in, um, in the next section as well. And I think it's, it's so efficient in yeah. getting your head around who these people are. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, this may be the most strained metaphor in the universe, but I think about <laughs> those, um, those, you know, YouTube channels or, or like the, Bob Ross thing where, where you're watching someone paint a painting in real time and your, your sense of what the painting is going to be evolves gradually. Right. And in the course of reading, uh, what is basically a short story, like, I mean, maybe it's weird to call it that, but I sort of call these little snippets of of a side character, like basically a short story. You kind of do get a beginning, middle and end with each of them. Um, while though has to start from a kind of base and then build upon that and and so everything that he builds up from there has to be consistent with the base and so i love that he uses like you like you pointed out these you know i think all three of these quotes that we have are are from pretty early in this section they are yeah and and he's so he's he's giving us these these little brush brush strokes to define who this is that we're we're the head of Um, yeah and it's type of thing that where like it's really important and it's very easy to to miss out on like when you're when you're focusing on trying to build like the actual plot of the story, right? Like we're in the section. What happens in the section? Well, secondhand goes and kills or, or severely hurts Byron, right? That's what happens in the section. That's the plot. And it's very easy to just get swept up and pushing that plot forward. But you really do have to lay this groundwork to understand this guy or this perspective is just not going to work. Yeah, I, I agree. So as he is uh, suiting up, uh, secondhand leers at one of the zombies, um, and it's revolting. Yep, it's gross, um, especially when he he's frozen in time a little bit later, and then just like is trying to get an angle to look down her shirt, and says this like deliciously awful line here, which is just like, "If I asked teacher for you, would he give you to me?" It's just disgusting. Like it goes out of its way here. The text goes out of its way to to get. Get us to understand how much of a piece of shit this guy is, right? Yeah, um, right. Um, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting later when he's like still telling himself this story about like, man, I didn't used to be this bad, man. Yeah. Um, it's like, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, it's all the, the Fallen's fault. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's all the Fallen's fault. Yeah. Um, so I love th- this line, this very, this single sentence. I love how much this tells us about the speedrunners. The four squared up, each facing the others, a huddle without closeness. Ugh. It's perfect. It's perfect. A huddle without closeness. Like everything is conveyed there, right? Yeah. Like who who these guys are, what they feel about each other. And the thing that I like about this is we're going to see throughout these this first chapter as compared to the last chapter, um, all these different teams on teacher side and and this concept of loyalty to teacher and this concept of loyalty to each other within your team and how all these different teams have differing senses of that. Right. Like Wasp Commander was had this guy with this team that liked each other and was loyal to each other and wanted to be together. Um, Saint and his two guys, like they were the three of them together were like 
they cared about each other. Like they lost one of their members and they were legitimately upset and unsure of what to do next. And then you got these guys who are just, it's like a, it's like an arrangement of convenience and that's it. Nothing more. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this tracks, but it, it seems like we've moved from the least monstrous to the most monstrous, um, pretty much linearly over the course of these three last chapters. Yeah. I take that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, hey Scott, I don't know if I mentioned it yet, but these guys suck. Uh, <laughs> Final hour reached out with his ordinary gauntlet free hand. We tough it through today. We go home to obscene orgies, girls with zero morals, drugs, and luxury. This is what we've been working for all this time. Now we pay our dues once in a while, keep the plate spinning. And if all the plates fall, end of days intoned, we're in the best position to rule over whatever things look like after. And then secondhand nods just to confirm that he's totally on board with this. Yep. Cool. So, Great, yeah. guys. Way to go. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, like, it's so funny because like Saint and his crew were convinced that, that, that we're on this team because they were convinced that what teacher was doing was the right thing. Right. Like that yeah. this is the right and necessary thing. And everyone else is fighting against them or just misguided. These guys don't give a shit. They don't yep. care. This is this is all about. Um, what is best for them. And, and, you know, this is the third or fourth beat we've had in this arc of people talking about just getting through this today and then going to tomorrow and what we want tomorrow. And you can see the value system in these people based on what that tomorrow looks like. Like for, for Victoria, it's hot chocolate with Kenzie and Ashley for, um, Saint and, and his crew, or was it Saint? Yeah, I think it was Saint and, um, I'm blanking on his name. Misha. Thank you. Um, it's, it's just, you know, like coming together and recuperating together. And for these guys, it's just partying, yep. zero morals, drugs, luxury, orgies, and not that I'm kink shaming orgies, knock yourself <laughs> out people, but it's just, you know, it, I think it just shows why, like what they're doing here, why they're here in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so next we're treated to some really fun power usage as we witness secondhand laboriously trudge his way through the breach they've created with the laser fighting against air resistance the whole time, uh, in a way that just apparently is just hell in his body and probably causes permanent physical damage to use for extended periods like he's doing. So yet again, while Bo thinks of a novel and fun implementation of the speedster power set. Yep. Um, and then we have secondhand listening to an audiobook as he makes his way down the hall. And this gives us a sense of how goddamn long this is taking him. Yeah. So I love this power. I, I, I love this mix of amazing and useful, but absolutely terrible to use. It fits right in line with everything we know about shards and everything we know about how powers work in this, in this universe, the, the cost it takes on him. You understand why they were so willing to like link up with love lost and cradle and them, right. To, to share tech stuff, because we basically get told here by secondhand that, um, if it wasn't for the new equipment he was using, the new suit he was wearing that like he couldn't even be doing this. Yeah. And I I think that's fascinating, but out of all this, the part that I love the most is the audiobook. Mm-hmm. I think this is such like, it's such a simple and effective communicative tool to get a reader's head around how much time is going. Right. Like you could very easily just go, Oh, we'll just have him look at his watch as he's running. Right. Or, and and then and then like you said, oh, two hours have gone by, four yeah. hours have gone by, but that wouldn't have the same effect. First of all, because like our our character probably wouldn't be looking at his watch constantly and calculating that because he's done this before and he knows how long it takes. Like, so it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for the character. But also, there's just a sense 
of understanding here in the idea that it's an audiobook. Like I think I think most people, if they never listen to an audiobook, they're generally aware of how long an audiobook is. So the fact that he listens to an entire book, except for like the first two chapters, just while walking down this hallway, um, really, really sells the length of time here in a way that I don't think anything else could. Oh, absolutely. It makes it so much more agonizing than if you said like it had been three hours or something. I don't, yeah, it's just, it's more visceral. Yeah. I absolutely. Like that's adore that. Yeah. Just like the number, the time just listing it's arbitrary, right? There's no, yeah. there's no meat to it. There's no connection to it because three hours can feel like it takes forever or it can feel like it goes by pretty quickly depending on your frame of mind, but an entire audiobook that works. Yeah. And it also is a great character moment because we get to see here that the audiobook he's listening to is something that was recommended to him by end of days. Um, it never says what it is because he can't bother to go back and listen to the title, <laughs> but it is obviously something religious because he says specifically that uh, if nothing else, it would help him walk the walk and talk the talk um, amongst 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 earth sea and and the fallen so mm-hmm. these are hyper religious groups that they are allied with out of convenience they don't actually uh, agree with them in any kind of philosophical way um so he's reading this audiobook in order to to fake it a little bit yeah also i think it's worth pointing out wabo's ability to keep track of stuff over like a million arcs because <laughs> the fact that or a million words i should say the, the fact that uh secondhand was making daily walkthroughs of hollow point was explicitly mentioned when they were talking about when breakthrough was talking about where to put their base they were like we, we have to put it outside of a certain range because the uh the speed runners have somebody who who checks out the entire uh like basically the entire um territory yeah and so he was used he was having to do this every day and um and, and he explicitly references that here so i just yeah. think it's a fun like yep that was that was uh that that's what was happening. This yeah. this guy was just suffering. Yeah, that's a great point. Because yeah, I mean, we knew his power, right? But we knew mm-hmm. it externally. Oh, yeah. he just like can freeze time and and move. Cool. But like, this is so much so much worse than any of that. Yep. So um, he finds Capricorn Orange and Victoria making their way down a hallway, and he heads them off, and he plants mines ahead of them, and then he detonates them when the heroes are in range. Victoria hits him hard with her aura, uh, and he finds that he can't escape it even when he enters his speedster state. Ha. Um, so as he makes his way back past them, he finds that it's actually Capricorn Blue who has been badly wounded, um, seemingly having absorbed the blast um, and uh, spared Victoria the brunt of it. Yeah, we talked last week about how using Contessa in this story is walking a very, very fine line, right? And And I still think it is, but using Contessa here in this moment is just a perfect way to mind drama out of your story. I think we know, or at least we have a reasonable amount of certainty that at the end of this thing, at least two members of breakthrough won't be walking away from it. And thanks to Capricorns making the thoughts that most of the fandom had textual, we're pretty certain that one of them is going to be one of the, the Capricorn brothers, right? Just because of the, the extended time, which they're hurt. That's something that, that Tristan or was it Byron? Capricorn verbalized as a probability. Yeah, it was Byron. And yeah, and yeah I mean, that's where my money is right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we'll, we'll I think we'll talk about that a bit later. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but because we know that, though, this whole moment plays out like a car crash we know is coming but can't stop. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, 
this guy is coming. The bombs are going to blow up. There's nothing we can do. We're in his perspective. So we've lost agency on our, our characters. We don't, we don't get to, um, we don't get to, to, to see them make the choices and make the decisions because we're in this third party. And so we just have to watch it happen. Um, it's yeah. It's just such a horrible, sickening way to go about it too. Like, like we're watching these heroes who we love, running into a uh like an ied type situation yeah. where it's just like that's just not even there's no there's no like glory to that it's 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 not like it's not badass the way ashley gets to to have her her outro it's yeah. just um ah oh, that's low and yeah. and it just sucks yeah especially since the book has gone out of its way to really make us hate this guy right like he's yeah. a miserable piece of shit that we don't like that has no redeeming qualities whatsoever and this is the guy that's going to take down our boy Ugh. Ugh. right 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 i do i do like that you pulled out that small detail where he is on top of victoria um he's the one injured and losing blood um, which, as you said, seems to indicate that he shielded her from the blow intentionally or no, we don't actually know that. That's just kind of the implication here. I mean, the book takes the time to show it to us. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I find that a really interesting detail just because, like, you're kind of thinking in your head how these different characters are going to react to these things. Victoria is a person who has a force field. Of course, she can't use it in close quarters for obvious reasons, but she does have a force field. So there is a version of Victoria that could have protected Byron from this blast and said she was protected and he was hurt. And then of course that other little beat where it was, it was Tristan before, right? Like when Mm -hmm. he, when he's placed the bombs, he, the text specifically says here, not the goat Capricorn. Interestingly enough, the fish, they must have changed or been changing. So when you're seeing these things, the book is feeding you these things like, and that I think are like setting up where the drama, where the conflict is going to go going into the future, because now you have a Tristan who's probably was either just recently changed or in the process of changing to Byron when the bombs go off, there's going to be some guilt there, right? Um, you have Victoria that that probably, knowing Victoria, probably going to say, I should have protected him, not the other way around. There's going to be some guilt there, too. I like how these things are done through a third party. Yeah, me too. I mean, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't actually know that Tristan is okay until the next chapter, right? Correct, yeah. So... The idea that this bomb hit them while they were changing leaves us with the sense that maybe it has maimed both of them, you yeah, know? Yeah. And we Very know that's possible. not the case, but um <laughs> but Wildbo has left us with this horrible, horrible situation. Thank you, Wildbo. Um so yeah. yeah. I, I, I like it though. I think it I think it's really it's some small details told from that external point of view that means stuff to us and not the character. And I think that, that makes them land in a different way. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think this is one of those moments where I want to like pause and say, it, I, I think it can feel very dry um, the way we analyze just because like, that's just what analysis is. You're kind of teasing things apart, but yeah. I want to, I want to like, just say like, man, this, this was, this sucked. Like this hurt to, yeah. to have, to have this happen to our character. And I, I want to kind of talk about Byron um, a bit and, and, you know, in the moment where you realize as soon as you know, Tristan is okay. And you realize that it's Byron that was hurt, like how much everything that this story was doing up until this point in this arc clicks into place. Um, I think we're going to wait to do that until we get to Byron's section. But uh, I want to I want to spend some time on that because I think it's just really good writing. Yeah, yeah, me too. So our next POV is Miranda, a.k.a. Ingenue, who um, 
I gave way too much slack based on her portrayal in Worm, um, which uh, you could probably read a lot into if you wanted. I don't remember. I have zero memory of what we said about Anjanu back in Worm. I mean, my my recollection, was, which may be wrong, is like it's really interesting how harsh Chevalier is being toward her when she just doesn't seem that bad. Um, and now we learn that her whole like not seeming that bad is like the whole reason why she's dangerous actually she, she fucking whammied you matt you be she careful did. She, she got me <laughs> i'm susceptible to her charms yeah um she's awful <laughs> just awful uh, yeah. but delightful we'll yes get into that in a sec yeah as we as we become more monstrous we become more like less just sick and shitty and more horosome which, yeah. which is more enjoyable, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, so a note that the first POV began with zombies and the second POV begins with, quote unquote, the shadows of the dead. And here, of course, she's referring to uh, the flock, Valkyrie's flock, kind of re- retreating. Um, but again, this connotation of, of the dead lurking. Yeah. yeah, the dead that aren't dead right it's i'm so glad you pulled that out because i i really love it um i I really enjoy all this this connotation and and this idea the central idea that you grasp upon in the first part of the chapter of of death being the spectrum is a thing that you know we don't see it that way human beings generally are like well there's dead and then there's not dead but no not in this not in this world I, I think even in our world, it's more of a spectrum, but yeah. we just very, very rarely encounter <laughs> the uh, the edge cases or or when we encounter them, we don't we don't see it as such. Sure. And I mean, I mean, there's all kinds of different, you know, belief systems that look at death differently. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, those are st- I mean, yeah, there's death is complicated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if I even realized how complicated until uh, this book. But yeah. yeah. OK, so. um we learned that Ingenue is exactly as fucked up as Chevalier said she was. Uh, she just seduces people into doing her dirty work for her, uh, taking over the birdcage cell block, for example. Uh, or in some cases, maybe she just directly makes people crazy. It's kind of hard to say. Uh, one way or another, people who get in her way met with unfortunate ends. And here in the story, she's taking a great deal of satisfaction in holding her own against Valkyrie's flock. I mean, is it weird that I find this character fun in like the most fucked up way possible because I do. I don't think it's weird. I think, I mean, she's, she's evil in a way that, that we, we don't normally get just like, Oh, this person's just fucking evil. And no, she but- just <laughs> enjoys it. She just yeah. loves it. Like she takes pleasure in how fucked up she is. Yeah. Um, like I, I like she's talking about, she's talking about, Oh, you know, yeah, I just like batted my eyes at this man. And then, of course, there was the blowjobs and and the the anal and the sex. And but I don't like dwelling on that part of it, because being that sweet sort of virginal was a state of mind. And dwelling on the lurid particulars made that harder. And it's just like, holy shit, like it's just it's wonderful and fucked up all at the same time. And I think part of it is like she's very self-aware, actually, like it's it's pretty clear, like she's not in denial like, like this isn't her telling herself like a, a story. This is just her bragging to herself. Yeah. Yeah. To herself. Right. I mean, that's yeah. the best, best part is like she doesn't know we're here. So yeah. like, yeah, this is her just, you know, re- reliving her past because she's proud of it. Like this, this she sees Valkyrie and she sees this as a moment of victory that was a long time coming, r- like re going over 
everything she did in the birdcage and, and her, her moment of triumph to getting to this point. And I just love it because like, she's like, I only got the job because no one else wanted it. Well, except for this girl and, and this girl. And yeah, but they all just met unfortunate accidents and it's like, oh, it's so perfect. I love yeah. it. I love oh. it. Like there's this, this, this moment here where she says the, the most powerful woman in all of the realities. And look at that poor thing lost her powers right when she needed them. Um, she got in Miranda's way and look at that. She was removed. Like that's just, that's the, the, the story repeats that phrase. Look at that twice in two paragraphs. And I think that just really like it sells like her attitude. In, Absolutely. Like, and it, oh, I love it so much. Like she's a piece of shit. I hate her. Right. But I, think, I love I, her. <laughs> I think my brain voice even actually read it like, and look at that. Right. You know, exactly. like a, like a want to strangle her. But at the same time, you're like, that's uh yeah that's evil love it yeah i mean and there's awareness you're absolutely right there's awareness to everything she does because even in this bit where she's like like stretching and causing her dress to to rise up just a little bit like knowing it's a little too short knowing that that scapegoat is gonna see it knowing that he'll look at it and knowing that he'll be caught and look away embarrassed because christian boys were always the hungriest like it's yeah like it's it's evil, but yeah, it is it is delightful. I yeah. enjoyed it so much. She's always scamming. Yeah. So we learned that uh, scapegoat uh, or uh, the black goat uh, is keeping Anjanu's helpers Hale and Hardy by transferring all the accumulated injuries onto a small handful of thralls who are only present for that purpose. Cool. Yeah. I bet all these people agreed to that totally and uh-huh. didn't have any objection to it at all. Yeah, they're probably getting paid a lot for taking on um, sure a whole bunch of fatal injuries. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Black Goat makes the double mistake of not listening to Ingenue and then insinuating that she's capable of making mistakes. <laughs> so she um, she has him torn apart. And she doesn't seem too bothered at the idea that she might have killed him, actually. Nope. Uh, so I think this scene serves the dual purpose of introducing us to Spawner and what his whole deal is, in, in addition to, you know, showing what a monster Ingenue is and uh, what she's willing to do if somebody crosses her. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll, you know dive into him a little bit more in the next chapter, but he is that bone saw creation and he's awful. Um, yep. I, I like this a lot. I like the, the what she does to black goat, because I think there is a certain amount of you that sees her going down memory lane and talking about all these terrible things she's done as like past events. Uh-huh. And then, and then so, so the book defines these past events and then goes on to establish that she's still the same person. She's still doing it like this is someone that that's not even against her. They're on the same side. They have the same goal. Ostensibly, it doesn't actually seem that they do once we learn a little bit more about her. But and it's literally just out of spite. It's just be- to prove that she can. Um, and it's it's like she's like making a pouty face at him and like, please can I, and then just like brutally has him ripped apart. Yeah. It's, I think what's, and and I don't know if I necessarily read this exactly right the first time, but, and and correct me if I'm misreading it, but, but she doesn't tell Spawner to do that. Spawner is like pissed off and, and she, she doesn't give him like a little stroke and that pisses him off even more. And then she and I think what happens is she just knows like, oh, he's furious and he wants to earn my favor. Yeah. And so she just says, you do what you need to do. That's and then absolutely he goes right. And, yep. And then he goes and does what 
what she does want him to do. So it's like she gets to have this story where it's like, oh, oh, poor little old me. And but but she absolutely caused this to happen. Right. Like not through mind control in the classic sense of like she's making Spawner do this, but she makes him love her. And then he does these things and then it's what she wanted. So, yeah, it's like it's yeah, it's the it's the 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 crazy lady like trope like made made manifest. Right. Like it's the worst possible connotation. And, And again, she's knowingly doing that like it's that she has no she has no delusion about what she's doing here yeah yeah i think that's true um, there is this moment that i wanted to point out here where ingenue calls the thralls dolls mm-hmm. and scapegoat pushes back against that similar to how final hour pushed back against the use of zombies he says thralls or bodies not dolls and i think just like it was with final hour this is this is our character like making certain rules for how he references these things and other terms go up against his his, his own self-narrative and he can't handle it yeah it reminds me of when he actually semi-altruistically healed someone in the prison i mean he was expecting yeah. like he was he was sort of doing it for future favors but i mean he did put himself at risk so like he's not 100 percent a bad person but here it's like, yeah, I think he's crossed enough lines that we can say he's he's a monster, but um, yeah, yeah. still still not still not able to you know still doesn't see himself that way. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what do you think it is about the phrase "dolls" that 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 crosses that line for him? That they're just playthings? That it's just that they move beyond a tool to just a plaything? Because like, it's just a body is dehumanizing as possible. They're not a person. They're just a body. Um, so yeah, he's, he's completely fine treating them as objects. It's just how the objects are used that he seems to draw the line at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess there's just a certain way that he feels comfortable thinking about them. And any time that's perturbed, it's upsetting to him, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know why exactly. And she kind of makes a guys and dolls reference here, right? Because she uh-huh. says, it's all dolls and boys, goat. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. So then Swan Song shows up, a total hero entrance complete with stance and one liner. Yes. She reminds her of uh, she reminds Ingenue of herself, uh, especially when she sees Swan Song's dry mouth and other signs of weakness, plus her trademark performative arrogance. Uh, it's wonderful. It is a really hero entrance. Like, like open the door and make sure it stays open. It's like yeah, ah. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to talk about the dry mouth a little bit um, because we we get a little more information about this, and I think it's very revealing and wonderful information. Um, we talked last week about how we thought that maybe this was a sign that there was some internal bleeding going on because, uh, you know, being extremely thirsty is a sign that you are bleeding internally. Um, and the book basically says, no, that's not it. Uh, it's something to do with her meds. It's a, it's a symptom of the medication she takes. And Anjanu says either she doubled up on medication to make sure it works or, her injury and the meds she took for her injury, like had a reaction with her normal set of meds and is causing them to react strongly, more strongly. And I like this a lot because I, I like, I like the first one more just thematically. I like the idea that like, you know, Swan song aware of the situation she was getting into, like skirting the line with hurting people. And indeed in a couple places taking lives accidentally, um, takes a second dose doubles up on her dose to make sure she gets through it. I think it it does something really important, which is remind us that Swan Song's entire existence is on 
the this line, right? That she's constantly just riding this line between losing it and killing everyone. Um, and, and, um, and like controlling herself. Right. So I, I, I love, like, I think it's important to us to remember that it's important for us here in this final moment of swan song to remember that is her existence. That is her life. Her life is on the edge of, on the edge of a knife and she's suffering. Yeah. I like your read there because I, didn't actually take what Anjanu was saying here at face value. I was like, yeah, she's just guessing. And, and I, I still think it's probably the internal bleeding thing. Like why, why would Anjanu have this insight? But it's like, well, I don't know. Like Anjanu has a reason for knowing about this kind of thing, uh, yeah. which is established in the text. Like the text goes out of its way to give her some credibility and say like, yeah, she had to pay attention to her girls in, in the cell block. Um, so she probably has an eye for this kind of thing. So, yeah. so yeah, she probably is right about her, her analysis here. And it's not just the dry mouth. She sees, you know, twitching. Um, she sees like eye twitching, like medication symptoms, I think yeah. is, is, is something that Anjanu picks up on here and is pretty explicit, I think. So I trust it. Um, yeah. and, and yeah, I like, I like that a lot. I think it's really important. Um, really, really important. Yeah. So there's this interesting bit that follows where Anjanu tries to engage Ashley in a conversation because uh, according to Anjanu, she's bored. Um, but she actually seems genuine about it. Like I actually believe her when she's like, uh, fuck it, Contessa's gonna, Contessa's loose. We're gonna lose. Might as well just chat, um, earn some favor for myself. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I kind of, I kind of take her at face value there too, just because um, she doesn't care. And, and, and we've kind of moved through these, these, teams you know just like we're moving through teams that are um you know more and more monstrous i think we're moving through teams that are less and less loyal to teacher um you know starting from wasp commander moving on up into ingenue who is loyal only to herself really and just is is in this thing as as convenience um she gets she gets power boosted out of it right like she benefits from teacher's involvement but it doesn't seem like she's has any real skin in this game um, outside of how she can benefit. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I mean, my, my understanding is that teacher has taken all of his kind of core lieutenants and he's let him keep their free will using scapegoats power. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she legitimately can say like, yeah, he doesn't have a hold over me. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I really love about this moment is, is for me, and I don't know if I'm the only one that thought this, but for me, there was going to be this moment where you think Ingenue is like going to try to convince Ashley to join her, right? Like this moment where she's, where Ashley accuses her of playing both sides and she says, don't we all kind of, and mm-hmm. I, I think this is a perfect mo- swan song moment because like playing both sides is something that is a question that has been around Ashley since the beginning. Right. I mean, this idea that she was only going to be a hero for as long as it worked out and then was definitely going to go back to being a villain. That was always what was going to happen. Um, she was pretending to be a villain back in the whole, um, hollow point. Thank you. Hollow point area. Um, it's this, this, this ongoing question of which side are you? Are you the damsel side? Are you the Ashley side? And it seems like, this could be setting up to like the last temptation of swan song here, you know, like Anjanu is going to be like, join me, come with me. Um, and I really didn't want that to happen. Like I, re- I was like, Oh no, we're not doing this. Are we? And it's so wonderful to me that we're not, that this is just like that. Ashley at this point in the story knows exactly who she is. Um, 
complexity or not, she knows who she is. She knows what she wants. She knows what she wants to be. And she's just here to be the hero to fuck up the bad guy and to complete her mission. And I, yeah. I like that we kind of lean into that for like a little bit. And then it's like immediately squashed. Like, nope, fuck you. Right. Yeah. All, all she's doing is basically waiting until she can get a little bit closer. Yep. yep. Um, and and she does. She tries to blast Ingenue. Um, although she, she hesitates just a s- fraction of a second before doing it. Which mm-hmm. allows time for Anjanu's servants to protect her, to give her power immunity. Um, and then Anjanu uses her new boosted power that allows her to interfere with and manipulate others' powers um, now at a distance and not requiring touch uh, in order to highly disrupt Ashley's ability to control her power. Yeah, so she lands on the ground hard, really hard. And we know she's already injured, so that hurts even more. Yeah. I want to talk about that hesitation real quick because I think that's really important. Because damsel, damsel of distress does not hesitate in that moment, right? She just goes for the kill immediately. Mm-hmm. No hesitation. But Ashley does. Swan Song does. That's the person she is. And that moment of hesitation is ultimately kind of what results in her death, right? Because if she hadn't have hesitated there, Ingenue might have been killed. Um, she wouldn't have. I mean, you you never know, like, right, we can't know for certain, certain, but that hesitation seems to lead down a chain of events that ends in Ashley's death. So is, is the lesson here then hesitating is wrong? Be, be the cold blooded killer, be the damsel. No, I don't think so. And I think that leads into the, 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 the part of Ashley's death and the significance of Ashley's death here that I love the most. But, uh, we gotta, we gotta get to that in a little bit. Okay, let's do it. So put a pin in that. And I'm going to remember to take the pin out this time. I <laughs> yeah, promise. don't worry. Don't worry. We, we don't leave pins in things on this podcast. <laughs> uh, so we snap very briefly over to last minute before, before this chapter wraps up as last minute reacts to secondhand disappearing, uh, instantly hearing the mind detonate and then secondhand returning to report the foreboding success. Yeah, I, I, I like this moment. I, I, I do. Um, it feels a little weird to me. Like, I, it feels like this moment that, like, it, it wanted to, like, this, the chapter wanted to end on this big bang moment, right? Where secondhand that says, one of the Capricorns is taken out and Antares is injured. And it's this big bang chapter end moment, right? But, like, structurally, it just felt a little weird to me. Like, we, we did this thing where um, we were with one character for a really long time, then we switch over to another character, and then we go back to a different character in the first group, Um, but only for like three sentences and then we're done. Like I liked the moment. It just felt a little, the structure of the chapter felt a little weird to me. And is it just me? I I don't know. I don't don't think so. I mean, I was trying to find like the, the, the Vinci code pattern hidden in, you know, the way the characters are visited and, and what, what each of them represents and so forth. And, um, I think I think maybe it's just really hard to write multiple consecutive multi-character interludes from the perspective of weird <laughs> villains that we've never seen before. Yeah, sure. Um, and and this was uh, an okay way of ending the chapter um, because yeah, maybe, maybe the ingenue you know outro wouldn't have wouldn't have worked as well. Well, I mean, um, what, what I kind of thought was, what if you did the ingenue part first? And then the speedrunners part, and then you could end on the continuation of speed. I don't know. Like, I don't even know if I like that because I do like the the kind of linear escalation of bad guys as well. Um, so I yeah. don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't see the thing is I don't actually have a problem with 
with this last snippet, it's just very, very unusual. Like in terms of, it's already unusual to have multi-character POVs, although it's become less unusual as war has progressed. Like <laughs> sure, we've, sure, we've sure. seen a bunch of different times where that's happened, but yeah, yeah. Um, it's to have such a short POV is, is interesting. Like again, I'm like, I, I feel like I might be missing uh, something that makes this make more sense. And, and as it is, I'm not like, off put by it it's just like yeah it it sort of does strike me as like hmm, i wish i could explain why this is this way yeah i mean I, I like i said i liked i liked the moment itself it's just the moment when you know put into the overall puzzle that i yeah. was like huh yeah i mean it's kind of it is kind of a fun idea just that we've captured like secondhand disappears bang secondhand reappears no yeah I mean, that's yeah. yeah it's cool i i think i think that's really cool and effective and we kind of replay the same line that we heard from secondhand's point of view except his next six hours was slowly trudging through misery with which yeah. for the other character it was just instantaneous yeah it's also interesting that he's like he's like i've we've got him and then the next time we actually see victoria and Tristan, they're like perfectly <laughs> You know, I mean, not perfectly right, but they're 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 still holding them off. Turns out um, we didn't got them. <laughs> yeah, right. It's it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. All right. Moving on to 15.Z. Yes. Finally, we lodge in teacher's dumb head and he gives us some color commentary on the percentages that we keep seeing. Uh, we see that his life has been pretty stressful lately. Uh, poor guy. Yeah, poor, poor guy. Uh, I, I like that we open up with those numbers once again, reminding us of this like ominous counter of doom and we get a little bit more information on what they mean not much but just a little bit more um that if if the if the ceiling got to 100 it would not be a war a raid nor a petty rebellion which i love that he calls it that i love that like this this massive warden scale attack he calls a petty rebellion it's perfect it's great characterization it would be a cataclysm though and he also calls the 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 floor number um what reality as they understood it was willing to handle or able willing and able to handle. Um, I, I think that's great little detail too. So little, we're getting thrown little, little bits, little crumbs of the full yeah. scope of what this means. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, uh, and, and it's left to our imagination what it would actually look like, but it's, it's clear, like the scale of it is clear, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's interesting I mean, it's a fun tool because Wild Bill has has used this to create a sense of of stakes without actually needing us to understand exactly what those stakes are. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it, like you figure it out. It's going to be real, real bad, folks. Yeah, I mean, we know enough about the world and about what's going on in it to come to a hypothesis that is enough to give us to buy us into why this is bad mm-hmm. without needing to know it all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we all have our own mental image of what happens when the when the floor gets broken or, or whatever. Sure. sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the most important part of the start of this chapter, though, is that teacher is coming from somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. And this is something that was not readily apparent to me the first time I read it. It didn't become more obvious until I was going through it again. But the chapter opens with the first thing he looked at when he could see the light again was the computer screen with the numbers. It took a moment for his eyes to focus. So yeah, like I said, I didn't pick up on this my first time through, but on a second read through, it becomes pretty clear that the place teacher was, um, was the same place we see him trying to go to at the end of the chapter, this door to the, the shard world. Um, 
And it's clear that being there is taking a lot out of him, right? Like he's comes out covered in sweat. He needs a, a wet towel. He's losing weight, it says. Um, and and later in later in this part of the chapter, it says he wasn't even there for that long. And it took this much out of him. Um, I, I think it's a, a wonderful little little bit that if I had picked up on it the first time, I would have been so freaking curious and so hopeful that it would have the chapter would have explained it to me and very happy that it would have. But I, I like that as a great way to start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I had a, well, yeah, I, I guess we don't know that he has access to this doorway until, until later, but yeah, I was, I, I misunderstood what was happening here. In fact, in fact, I thought that he was emerging from having been, you know, using that, uh, that eye power, um, yeah. to visit someone different. I, I um, thought so at first too. And it, it took me going through the text again and seeing that the way he approaches melody, which is, I think the eye power girl, um, the way he frames using the power, it made it pretty clear that he wasn't like he was just using the power and then he left and now he's going back. It was, I'm using the power for the first time in a bit right now. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, and also like there's this moment where <laughs> It says here he couldn't meander remaining in the threshold served nothing and no one. So he's like standing in the doorway of this portal, just like he is at the end of the thing. And he couldn't he couldn't he can't say still. And I think that's that's a fun line for setting up the threshold to the shard world setup that's going to pay off at the end of the chapter. But that's just a good teacher defining thing, right? Like he doesn't feel like he can say still he can't stay in the threshold. He's either got to walk through the door or not. And um, that's that's kind of explains maybe in his warped mind why the things that he's doing are absolutely necessary. Yeah, I mean, like the the, the phrasing served nothing and no one implies that like the the way he kind of thinks about what he does is as a kind of service to to others or or to concepts like the greater good, perhaps like in, in his narrative, he is he is pursuing these good ends. Right. And in the conversation at the end of the chapter, he's clearly, I don't think he's just full of shit when he's, when he's telling them like, this is the best outcome. Like, I think he believes that actually, um, except it puts him on top, right? Like the best outcome for teacher is one where he is on top, like by definition. Right. So yeah, I don't know. It's complicated, but I mean, I agree with you and I think that's why we're in his point of view right now. And I think one of the things that's really fascinating about the story is, We've started with these low level teacher drones in point of views. And then as the chapters have gone on, we've kind of slowly ramped up and we've slowly moved closer and closer to teachers inner circle. Right Um, now. Now we are him. We are in his head. And like you would think that the monstrousness would ramp up to him. And and I'm not saying teacher's a good guy, but compare his internal monologue with Anjanu's internal monologue, right? They're very distinct. They're very different. Anjanu, as we said, takes pleasure in being evil. I didn't get any of that from teacher here. There's no like, there's no bits where he's like enjoying being a piece of shit to people, enjoying killing people in this part of the chapter. It's just business to him. It's just the work that needs to be done. Um, and I, that's fascinating. Yeah. And, and then we also have to consider, of course, the kinds of people that he's willing to employ and, and leverage. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um, which, which I think maybe like if we are going to be fully literal and say that the characters go from least monstrous to most monstrous, then the idea that just his sort of, um, banal complicity with all of the horrible things that he's doing and, and his willingness to sacrifice life on this scale while just shrugging off the the horror of it as, as yeah. being justified does place him as 
somewhere between Ingenue and uh, Mama Mathers <laughs> in no, terms of monstrousness. I totally agree with you. And I'm, I'm not trying to say I'm not trying to defend teacher Jesus, um, but I just think it's 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 telling that like even even Mama Mathers enjoys what she's doing, like yeah. enjoys the evil of it. So he's kind of sandwiched between these two people that seem to genuinely enjoy the shitty things that they're doing to each other. And he doesn't feel that way. Yeah. Um, he's yeah. doing terrible things. He's willing to do terrible things. Certainly. Uh, it's just different. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. It, the, the way in which it's different is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So he's very confident uh, that he has Contessa handled despite her having already compromised his communication system. So are we meant to take from this that he's hilariously overconfident or that he's actually kind of right? Because he does actually escape in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a little of both, right? I think he is really confident. um, But I also think he's wrong. I mean, like the thing that I love about the ending is that you see this moment of genuine surprise from teacher when Contessa says the choice that she's made. And I think maybe part of that confidence was this understanding in his mind or this thought in his mind that she was the same Contessa who participated in all the cauldron choices, that she was the, the, the kind of person who would see the best solution as he thinks it is um, and just agree with it on some central level. So that while she was being a thorn in the side, in his side, eventually she would understand that his way was the right way. Um, because I think that is the moment we see surprise in him, right? That she, she, she's a different person. She's not that person. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, I mean, he is overconfident because he loses, but he does survive. So sure, yeah, yeah. So he learns that um, apparently uh, Citrine and Kurt were just blown up in a car bomb, and one of them is dead. Uh, Dinah is upset. Uh, let's. So first of all. I've heard a lot of chatter in the in the chats and the channels and so forth <laughs> um, that people don't believe that Citrine and Kurt were actually in that car. They think maybe it was body doubles or something. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the evidence for that is um, Citrine and Number Man were at the raid, right? They said specifically they were going to be participating in the raid. And then when the report is handed down to teacher, they're told they were leaving the office and heading home. And there's some, there's some discongruity there, right? Yeah. Um, now, I mean, it is certainly possible that like the way teacher learned about this was through like a news report in which the, the press released it as, um, he, they were heading back from their office. Right. And right. they like kind of, so, I mean, it is very possible, but I mean, that, that does seem to be some inconsistency there. Right. Um, yeah. the one thing we do know is that Contessa ordered one of the number boys to go tell Citrine to head home immediately. Um, so I, I, I don't know. It seems yeah. like that is putting, pushing the pieces towards a, this car bomb will help distract teacher. I, f- I mean, my, f- I don't know. I don't want to get bogged down in this, but I was like, even if they are participating in the raid, they could probably get out of the building um, to a car and head and start heading home pretty quickly since it's Citrine and and Kurt of all people. Sure. They can probably move quickly if they need to. Um, So, I mean, for all we know, the the uh, the entry point they took to get to teacher's base was an office, you know, so like, (laughs) I I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't, I, I'm not convinced that that's enough evidence to make me say, yes, it absolutely didn't happen. Um, yeah. And that starts, to me, that starts getting like almost too 
complicated and confused. Um, and, and I think, I think the implications of the non, the anti-parahuman group, uh, accelerating to actual terrorism is really juicy. And so like part of me wants just for the sake of the story, that to be where it's going. So maybe, maybe I'm just wanting it to be true in that way. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Uh, I'm unconvinced that it didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, I'm going to stop talking about it because it's, it's one of those (laughs) things where like, we'll just find out what the case is at some point. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but let's talk about the implications of Dinah for a second. Yeah. She's been this kind of background character the whole time. Right. Um, we know she was doing stuff with the anti-parahuman group. We know she was working with Gary in some way. Um, and now we know that whatever this was, she's pissed off about it. And she's going to go yell at her boy, Gary Nieves. So what's she doing, Matt? I don't know. It, it's really interesting to have this. I, I feel like this is going to come to the forefront at some point. Yes. Because we've got Contessa now and she is in this place where she has made like a complete sea change in how she views her power and how she wants to be using it. Like she, she just, she, she's done with using it the way she's been using it up to this point. And, um, and she's kind of realized what a monkey's paw it ends up being, whether that's because the shard is malicious or just because reality itself doesn't, <laughs> does, doesn't give you, you know, things that, that are going to make you happy. Sure. I mean, the way she phrases it is like when you break it down to certainties, everything is just trade-offs between shit that you're willing to accept. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas Dinah, um, her power, or just the way her power works is different. And so maybe she's trapped in a similar way where she's trying to steer things using her power, but um, either not quite getting what she wanted, like in, in, a, in a kind of Contessa way where she thinks she's steering things in a good direction, but then becomes increasingly disturbed by the requirements of getting there. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's well, kind of my, my first pass. Well, Contessa's power is proactive, right? Mm-hmm. And Dinah's power is reactive because mm-hmm. it's like, do something, then see how the percentages change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is two different ways of approaching using these kind of powers to uh, get to the best possible outcome. And I think it is it is really fascinating. And I agree with you. Seeing how she slots into this whole thing is going to be really, really interesting, because obviously, for some reason, she believes or her power is making her believe that um, helping along or closely being around this anti parahuman sentiment is is leading to a good outcome. Um mm-hmm. You would have to assume. I don't think Dinah's an evil person, right? So I don't think right. she's just like actively going like, "Yeah, fuck these." Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, I think it it is it is really fascinating that we're we're having kind of Dinah being positioned to move to the forefront at this this Contessa moment. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah, like regardless, right? It, it, this this ploy of of making it at least seem like uh, like. Uh, the beaker folks have been killed has its effect because um teacher is thinking now he had to choose he could have that but lose this or vice versa for something to be this conveniently inconvenient or inconveniently convenient suggested contessa <laughs> um i just think that's it's funny because it absolutely is her act um yep yep and it's it's i love that phrase conveniently inconvenient or inconveniently convenient is yeah it's wonderful yeah uh yeah um, so we make the very unusual jump via a power from teacher's POV into Christine Mathers. 
yeah, I, I think this whole transition is really wonderful. Um, this mo- like it is it is rare in these multiple point of view chapters that I think the transition is this kind of seamless um, where he just goes through this this power to see through his lieutenants. Um, and, and I guess like I really liked this chapter. My biggest disappointment with the chapter, if you can call it that, is that this framing device is kind of just dropped after this moment. Um, I thought it would be really cool if it continues throughout it. Like one of the things I really love about the wild bow interludes is that they are, as you kind of hinted, like short stories, like these mini stories. And they usually have some sort of like structural element to them that usually carries through from the beginning of the chapter to the end of the chapter. And I, I felt like that's what we were doing with this. And then, so like, it feels, it feels weird to be like, I'm disappointed. This great idea there wasn't more of it is <laughs> a weird complaint, but I just think like, I just think like it, it, it is such a cool thing to do. And, and it really felt like it was what's going, was going to be done. And it wasn't. Um, I think that we get spoiled by stuff like eclipse yeah. being a perfect structural palindrome. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean my favorite, my favorite <laughs> of the wild bow interludes are very tight, right? They have this yeah. core central idea to them. Um, and, and, and and they the chapter is built around that core central idea. And I love I love everything in this chapter. Right. I think it's yeah. all fantastic. Like when you're in it, it's wonderful. It's working on me. But, yeah, if I'm looking at this from a 500 foot level, I'm just like, oh, I wish it was just I wish it was like those other fantastic interludes. <laughs> Instead, it's yeah. just a great interlude. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I guess I agree to the extent that um, uh y- when you see one when you see one device being used to transition between between characters and then there aren't any other devices used to transition between characters it sticks out um, yeah well being, yeah and there's a moment after the mathers uh section where we jump back to teacher for a couple paragraphs mm-hmm. um and i i felt like that was setting up that right like i, I mm-hmm. really felt like at that moment like okay we're back in teacher and now he's going to go to the next one and the next one right um so i mean it just it just felt like that's what the book was doing so it was just a little like huh yeah you know again yeah, i mean i, I mean think, i i think the el- the elements of the chapter great yeah it's just the structural stuff i, I don't normally like to uh make uh, guesses of this nature but like maybe that was the original plan with the chapter and then sure while well, decided that didn't really work i am confident enough to say yeah it was something like that because it just seems <laughs> it just seems like it just really does seem like it mm-hmm. um that's a total guess but yeah <laughs> cool <laughs> um all right so uh as On we join Mama. let's, as let's we do join, this, this great amazing section yes lovely christine uh, she thinks to herself about how she's using her power on hundreds of thousands of people on Earth Sea, suddenly making religion seem more appealing and uh, not religion seem less appealing. Uh, really a very cool application of her power, actually. And, and I think scary in a whole different way from the more overt and like immediate combat uses that we yeah. tend to see. Um, I, I think she's this classic example of a cape who would have taken over the world if not for her personality flaws. I think you're right, because I'd never thought of how insidious and sneaky her power could be like this until this chapter, because we had mostly seen Mama Mathers act and influence people who knew what her power was and understood what was happening. Right. It's like, oh, there's a scary Mama Mathers in front of me, like making evil, scary stuff. That's awful. And I know it's fake, but it feels real. But 
yeah, these are like 250,000 people who have no idea who she is, have no idea what her power is, and have no idea that, that they're under her sway. And she can just do these little things that just push them in one direction or another. And and it's awful. Like, it's awful in like a way that it would be super effective yeah. if used on a global scale. Right. And, and it's an almost, I mean, queen administrator level um, multitasking type thing where... It's not like uh, my understanding of her power is she's not using, she's not having to pay attention to 300,000 people. She's got kind of a proxy Christine Mathers living in their head almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe kind of reporting some stuff back to her, but but generally that that person is being like tended to by like a little figment of her. Yeah. Uh, which is just horrifying and and like you said very very powerful yeah and she's super racist too let's not forget about that <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> the the part where she's like yeah and then we'll make all the the brown and black people you know kneel down before the whites yeah i was like god yeah. you were terrible right. enough as it is now yeah. you're just gonna throw racism into it just yeah. for but, funsies but first things first yeah. yeah i mean yeah i mean this is an interesting we, we've talked about religion a lot uh, i mean the book has and, and so yeah. we obviously um but this idea that like for her, like it's like nothing in her mind has anything to do with Christian doctrine, right? It's just whatever she like her her fucked up worldview and the tool that she's going to use to spread it is Christianity, yeah. her her form of Christianity, which is really just like worshiping her. Like it's a very interesting kind of double think because I, I don't think I don't think that in her own mind she's like. I'm going to make them worship me. She's like, I'm going to make them worship God and Jesus specifically. And I mean, Jesus. that's like, yeah, it is yeah. definitely Christianity because she says like, if you're worshiping yeah. God, but not mentioning Jesus enough in your sermons, I'm going to punish you. Um, yeah. And, and that is, I mean, it's, it is really specific to that, but like any other denominations, any other belief systems that don't line up with her, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to make them look terrible. It is specific Christianity, but it is not Christianity in any right. way, shape or form. Like, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and she clearly does want to be worshiped ultimately. Like yes. that's, yeah. I mean, we talked, I think even a long time ago when her power was first introduced, we talked about the idea that this is like a child's conception of God. It's, it's, it's always watching you. Um, judging you yeah. um, personally and punishing you for, yep. for not listening. Yeah. So anyway, she finds that she can use her power on Chevalier in a deeper way because his kind of powers site that he has uh, gives her a, an avenue with which to flood him with memories of her life. And from this, we learn that Elijah triggered as a, as a child, as an infant maybe, um, and that she herself is actually a cauldron cape. Yeah. So, I mean, this whole Chevalier part, I think, is just one of those one of those wild bow wrinkles on powers that like I never would have thought of in a million years. But as soon as it's told to you, it makes perfect sense. Like her power works through the senses. Chevalier has a sixth sense. So, of course, the power is going to work through that sense as well. Right. Like it's, it makes perfect sense when you lay it out like that. But I never would have thought of that. And I don't even know. Um, I don't even know if like like he had that central idea when he came up with it or if it's just like, okay, I got these two characters in a room and, oh yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right? interesting. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do kind of feel like stuff like, uh, what happens in a little bit with love lost is something where it just maybe, uh, pop, you know, it, it, it's, it's something that pops out of the setting, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, um, it wasn't necessarily thought up ahead of time. Maybe it was, I don't know. Um, so, 
she doesn't actually know if uh, Valeford died, and she doesn't seem too terribly concerned. So, some somewhat concerned, a little bit concerned. Yeah, I, I find this fascinating, right? Because in this moment, we learn that she's a cauldron cape. The reason she's a cauldron cape is because um, sh- her son triggered as a baby and she kind of was desperate for help. Um, the, she, she's, she's desperate for help with, um, with you know, him a handle on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so she goes to cauldron, but then we see the same woman who was like, who, who was like willing to, to, to promise favors to cauldron and, 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 and incur this debt to be able to be with her son and hold her son, like abandons her son during that battle, right? With that very specifically, she just says, Oh, looks like we're gonna lose. Bye. Yeah. And she just takes off. And yeah, here she's curious about if he's still alive, but it's not like forefront in her mind. It's just like a a, a random kind of curiosity. And there's there's seemingly a disconnect there, right? Like this is she cared enough about him. What happened? Has she just gone totally insane? And thinking about this, well, the reason, Matt, is because Mama Mathers has almost 300,000 children now, right? Like she has a bond with each and every one of these people that have seen her. That is, I mean, there's a reason why she calls herself mama Mathers, right? Like this bond with every single one of these people allows her to maintain this kind of, um, paternal watch over them. She's like the world's worst helicopter parent to every single person that is in contact with her. So the idea of losing one of her children is not, as impactful to her when she's got a whole bunch of them. Uh, it's horrifying. <laughs> right? I, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm immediately like, yeah, I guess she'll have to find someone else to give her the sponge baths and I'm sure she will. Yeah. Um, yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, as she's kind of tormenting Chevalier, we learned that um, everybody wants to fuck Chevy. I mean, don't you? (laughs) What a fucking guy. Like even in this moment, like we've seen him in the last book, like getting his ass kicked and like, you know, slowly walking up to behemoth, despite the fact that he's literally dying. And in this moment, she's throwing everything she has at him, every bit of manipulation. She's got almost every single one of his senses under, under her control. And he's resistant to the last, right? Like, he she says taste me and he goes oh yeah i'll fucking just bite i'm gonna bite you uh-huh. um he he is resistant to everything she can throw at him till the very end and it is god he's a fucking badass it's, i love it's chevalier awesome. yeah yeah pretty awesome uh she may, so yeah like we mentioned she manages to fuck up love lost uh just through her emotion sensing power mm-hmm she almost uh, snipes Love Lost using one of her subordinates' powers, but Love Lost is bailed out by uh, uh, rain, I think. Um, and then, you know, the room that they're in and possibly the surrounding structure begins to collapse. Mama responds by giving everyone a vision of their side losing horribly. Um, and it seems like it's about to come true until rain actually does show up. Uh, and then his presence makes her so mad that she changes her focus to being more about taking him down specifically. Um, and it, interestingly, she casts him as the vision of this, sorry, as the villain of this scene, uh, turning all the good capes against him. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about this for a bit and, and we usually, we try not to like get into the, the community conversations about stuff. Right. Um, but there is one thing that I did want to 
talk about here a bit, because one of the the critiques of this chapter I saw is that people really thought it would be much more fitting and much more important for us to see Reigns fight with Mama Mathers, right? To see this this final conflict. This is this is the guy versus the woman that is is heavily responsible for a lot of the bad shit that happened to him. And they needed they wanted to see more of this conflict. They wanted to see it to its fruition. And that's one of the critiques of this chapter that I just don't agree with at all, because I think there's everything here that that we need there to be. I, I honestly do, because there's this moment right here where she sees him. She sees Rain and he's not hers anymore. He is like and, and of course, he's not hers because of uh, his new family, because of the tech that Kenzie has given him that is allowing him to look at her and hear her without being affected by her. But that's because he's found a new family. He's found a new group to belong to, and he's not part of the Mathers family anymore. And that is made abundantly clear here to where the only option she has in this moment is to build a false image of who he is and use that false image to uh, to get other people to attack him and uh, this it's a good line like this i this thing she thinks to herself you walk up to them as if they're your allies that you have their back and they have yours but you're alone child you will always be alone unless you're with me and it's like a good line it's like a badass line but it rang so hollow to me in the moment it's it's bullshit like it's Mm -hmm. total bullshit rain isn't alone we know that he isn't alone because we know who his new family is and, and these people that are turning on him in this moment are not turning on him because they still believe he's that old person. They're doing it because she's forcing the image of that person to be here, an image of him that is not him. She has to create that image because it's not here anymore. And I'm not saying that rain's not going to struggle with his past. Like that is going to be something he's going to be struggling with for the rest of his life. That's just part of life, but he's not that person anymore. And, this threat of hers just rang so hollow to me. And I think it's supposed to, I think, I think everything in this interaction that needs to be there is there. And the actual like kicky, punchy fighty part, I don't think is necessary. I don't think we're going to learn anything more about rain's character in the, in the rest of this fight. Yeah. I mean, we already saw him kill veil Four, which was first of all, not played as a badass hero moment because he hated that he had to do that and he asked permission to do it first, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like like as much as we kind of are glad Veil vale 4 is dead, it was not it was not a moment where you're like, Yeah, fuck Veil vale 4. It was, <laughs> it was like, I mean, I I can't help but remember that like, hey, this is the guy who like brainwashed himself like to, to get out of the suffering that he was going through. Like yeah. I mean, yeah, he sucks totally, but like he sucks because of powers. Yeah. Um uh yeah, I mean like I just don't see what it would have. I agree completely. I don't see what it would have added if if we just had like another paragraph where it was like, and then Rain totally um, <laughs> cut her in half with his blade, yeah, and she and she was dead, and it was totally sweet. Like, yeah, to I, me I, the I, conflict is resolved when he stands there, looks looks right at her. She calls out to him. He doesn't react, and she recognizes he's not mine anymore. That yeah. is that is Rain's victory moment. That is conflict overcome yeah i didn't see this until just now but we have the language of um veil for her her you know elijah looked up at her with eyes that flashed and here we have uh rain jumping up out of the ground with glowing eyes mm-hmm. that she can't penetrate yep um yep. just kind of yep. a cool visual 
motif. Oh yeah, it is. It is. There's and there's cool. nothing you could do, Mama. Yep. Suck it. Yep. Nothing. You can't get help on this one. Uh, and then we switch into um, maybe the worst POV yet. Oh boy. Um, hard to say, uh, really, which is saying something. Uh, but Spawner is just a real piece of work, isn't he? He's all the worst parts of Crawler and Breed stitched into a physical powerhouse, regenerator, and a master of little slicey bugs. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, we're talking about worst. I think bugs coming out of his urethra is <laughs> the worst thing that I've ever thought about. But, yeah, I don't, I, like, it is interesting that, like, point of view wise, I don't know if he's, like, more monstrous than Mama Mathers, but he's yeah yeah more physically monstrous for (laughs) sure but that's for sure yeah uh so ashley tries to verbally provoke him but her read on him isn't quite right because um spawner is cautious is cautious uh due basically to the um to the breed aspects um and his power is uh fucking whore awesome yeah i don't know if i'd say like she reads him wrong just that the dude's got two personalities up in that brain bug that bug brain brain bug Blah, blah, yeah. and is kind of able to exist in the space between them right so the taunts would have worked on half of him uh it's just it doesn't work on the other half and that's really not fair stop yeah it's not no. it's not her fault matt stop blaming well, think, ashley for anything no well i ever. think ultimately like all of her kind of all of her taunting does build up yes and and, and make him angry enough that he does kind of become aggressive right so doesn't work in this moment but the fact that she's doing it i think kind of accumulates and it, it ends up working is yeah. how i would view it um and you know i don't think i have the heart to give a blow by blow of this fight Mm-mm. you know i mean let's just you know o- overview ashley's getting just physically torn apart literally torn apart by successive attacks from spawner um she fails to hold them off because her power is still disrupted by ingenue but she never gives up she never even seems to hesitate uh, she pushes verbally and pushes the attack um, and then when somebody helps her, she's more concerned at potentially hurting an ally than about herself. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. Let's keep let's keep going. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to pull out uh, a few things. So one of them is, I, I think, a really cool technique, which I'm going to just label inviting ambiguity. Uh, and, and I'm going to quote this text here. A cape grabbed Swansong's, Swans, uh, Swansong's arm to help her get back from the spreading tide, and she flinched, her power sparking, her empty white eyes and eyebrows suggesting fear. Fear that she might destroy the person saving her, or fear because she was vul- as vulnerable as she had been since Bonesaw had lopped off her hands. So here, while Bo's not telling us which it is, he's posing the question to us through a character at, and inviting us to figure it out. So the question, is it fear for the other cape or fear for herself? Um... But I think there's a right answer. I think we're meant to just, I think we're meant to know. Um, Ashley's not thinking about Bonesaw here. She's not thinking about fear for herself here. I, I think you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and like we said last week, I think Ashley sensed that her end was coming one way or another. And survival is not something she's really worried about at this point. She's worried. Of, and, and I think what happens next, the fact that you know, she gets her power control back, but then loses her own protection of it and doesn't hesitate at all, confirms this, right? Yeah. Um, she's worried about finishing the mission, getting the vials where they need to go, not hurting the people around her. Um, I, I think this also echoes the moment we saw from the Wasp commander point of view last week where she was, there was a brief moment where she had concern for herself, but then Wasp commander notes that the concern shifts 
from being concerned with herself to being concerned about Sveta. That concern shifted. And I think that's it's a continuation of that here. The, the fear is not for herself. It's for others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's extremely beautiful. Harkens all the way back to the first stuff we know about her character. Yep. Um, this, uh, yeah, it's beautiful. So, yeah, like you said, Anjanu takes her immunity to her own power and then she starts to destroy her own body as she continues to fight. Yeah, I think this is so important and so wonderful to this entire death scene because Spawner and Anjanu see this as like a a brilliant move, right? Like it's a devilish trade off. It's like, OK, we'll give you your control back, but you lose your own protection protection. You have control again, but every use of it will annihilate little bits of yourself. So now what do you do? Huh? Now what do you do? And I think for most people, the answer would be hard to come by. It's like, oh, God, I got to limit my use of my power. I got to I got to be careful about this. I can't I can't destroy myself. Not Ashley. Right. Ashley's never really had a lot of concern about her dying. She's she values control more than that. Right. So what Anjanu has actually done is just played exactly into how Ashley values herself. And yeah. And so she doesn't hesitate. She doesn't hold back. She recognizes the consequences of her using her power almost immediately. And it doesn't change a damn thing. Yeah. I, I think that's really beautiful that she's not, she's not just, just, um, uh, she's not full of it when she says like, Oh, you fool, you've given me back my control because yeah. it, it is, she's literally like, like, yeah, I mean, th- this is this is what I need. I need mm-hmm. I need control. I don't care if it's self-destructive right now. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. Um, so here, you know, I think we've all been wondering when Gru would show up. We knew he would. Um, but I think what's actually cool is that he only really shows up here as a presence that assists Ashley almost by accident, like almost just in the course of keeping Valkyrie hidden. I think he's, he just happens to be helping um Ashley um and and I think it's a cool moment because like it's it's not Neo O'Brien stealing the show it's it's just a uh a, a background element that gives you a little fist pump in the middle of this intense fight I I completely agree and I'm I'm so glad we don't actually see him here mm-hmm. this is not Gru's moment to come back into the story this is Ashley's moment she's earned this moment this is hers mm-hmm. um and 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 so all Gru is doing here is being like a roadie for Swan Song's final concert performance, right? He's handling the fog machine. <laughs> and 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 the thing I love about this is it's, it's such a wonderful fog machine too because darkness is Ashley's aesthetic, right? And and so in the final moments of her life, in the last final moments where she's she's making a final statement of who she is and what she is, She's shrouded in darkness. She's hiding in it. She's leaping out of it. She's eventually ascending above it, climbing above the darkness as a figure from her past leaps up to pull her back down and is blown away. It's aesthetically perfect. Thanks, Gru. <laughs> yeah, my God. Yeah, the the things, uh, Jesus Christ. I didn't even put that connection together. But yeah, the the, the things reaching up from below to, to bring you back down and and she just... She set it all up. How did she set it up? Yeah. Using using her friends, yep. using her her connections to other people. Um, so yeah, let's let's do that part now. Okay. Um, so while holding off two other handpicked Ingenue capes, Ashley uses Chekhov's arm spike to stab 
uh, the other bone saw creation through the throat. Uh, he counters by putting a monster into her abdomen, and then she escapes into the darkness, next emerging to climb a ladder using one hand and the crook of an elbow, her legs useless. Um, and as a spawner watches this just horrible sight, he thinks, was this bone saw's work? He had never been injured enough to activate any berserker protocol or summonate programming that had been implanted with memories. But her forward progress was single-minded, laborious, and marked with wheezing breaths. She went after Anjanu. It's not Berserker Protocol, dude. It's just Ashley. Yep. It's just Ashley. And that's what I love about it is this this death scene is quintessentially Ashley. And it's everything about Ashley we've been talking about this entire time. Um, it, it's Is it Damsel? Is it Swansong? Is it both? Is it neither? Something else? It's all of it. It's yeah. all of it. Yeah. So Nedley tries to ambush her, but she has placed one of uh, Kenzie's tinker eyes in a location to get a perspective on the fight and to set a trap. I mean, I'm making some inferences here, but I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that was the, the gist of it. Yes. She sees him coming and she blows him away, leaving just enough of him to perceive the rest of the fight. Uh, and then she collapses and she's assisted in completing her mission by Clockblocker, Kidwin, and uh, probably Brian. Um and uh, as one of her final acts, she asks them not to let Valkyrie have her. Yeah. And uh, that's when Ashley dies. And it's not just that she dies, right? Because we're all going to die. And as we've been saying, I think Ashley expected that she was going to die here. But it's how she dies that matters. Because in, the, in her, her final words here are, I thought I'd go out screaming and ranting, sick and hating myself for it. I did. Every other time except the first. And then she's asked, You said you had a friend? She nodded. Glad it was me. Means there's less chance it's her. I can handle this. Been here enough times. Every other time, that's how she went out. Every other time. Screaming and ranting, hating herself. But not this time. This time, she's got a friend. And this time the monster she vanquishes looks right at her. And what does he see? Her eyes. Mm -hmm. The one thing we've seen throughout the entire of Ashley's arc has been a focus on her eyes. And he sees one was white from corner to corner. The edges smoking black. The other was ordinary. One eye, white pupils smoking black. The other, normal. So who is Ashley? She's all of those things, right? She's the Mm -hmm. Ashley who tried to protect her mother from an abusive man and accidentally killed her. She's the Ashley that killed a man she loved because of presumed betrayal. She's the Ashley who joined the Slaughterhouse Nine and who was ultimately destroyed by them. But she's also the Ashley who befriended a little kid no one else was giving a shot. An Ashley who chose hands over claws. An Ashley who stayed a hero well beyond when it was just working out. An Ashley who protected her friends who hesitated before blowing away Ingenue because she didn't want to be like those that person anymore. And Ashley, who completed the mission, who leapt out of darkness even though her legs didn't work because she refused to stop fighting. She is what she was, but also what she ascended to be, both literally and, and figuratively. And she died not hating herself. And in this story, where we're talking about the spectrums of death, death is not one thing. Death is a lot of things and how you die matters. And, and so to take, to to put the pin or to take the pin out of our, our conversation before 
it matters that she died being a person that would hesitate before killing people, a person that didn't want to be that person anymore. That matters. And like, there's not a much better death than that. Right. Like yeah. that, that, that is, that is the death that, that like, we're all going to die. Hopefully we'll die being the person that we struggled to be and often failed at being, but ultimately achieved. Like, yeah, I, I hope that's the way I die and that's the way she dies. And yeah. like there's it's tragic and it's sad, but there's there's a moment of peace there, too. Right. Because she has to take pills constantly. To be a person that can survive in the world without losing it. Right. It's a constant struggle. We go back to her interludes. It's a constant struggle for her constantly. That's a rough existence, right? It's, it's a hard life and maybe now she gets to be at peace and knowing she goes out as the person she wanted to be, the person who doesn't hate herself, man, like it's sad, but what else can you want? <laughs> what else can you want? Yeah. I mean, I, I like you've kind of covered both ends of, of a spectrum that I was having trouble squaring um, because when I first read the chapter, I, I kind of I went into the discord to kind of give my reaction and I, I deleted my first like thing that I wrote because I, 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 I was going to write something like that was that was really badass. And I was like, that's just such a reductive way of framing the way that that death was was executed narratively. Like, yeah, it was badass, but that's not that's such a inadequate way of of posing it. Right. It's mm -hmm. and, and I was like, it's also not I also wouldn't call it tragic like it's it's always tragic in a sense when someone dies, but like it was a, it was a great like crowning moment of, of like you said, ascendancy, right? She, she, she ascended and transcended the things that she has been struggling against and, yeah. and, and for a really great cause and, and it, and it was, and it was great. So there's, there's, there's a lot of complexity to it. There's, yes, it was badass and cool and, 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 I don't know if I'm over it enough to call it fun, um, but uh, but uh, it it was it was more about the fact that this is a culmination of of everything that we've kind of been told about this character, everything we understand about who she is. Yeah, um, I I was sad, but I was satisfied. Yeah, Be and, and I think I think Ashley is too, right? I yeah. think she dies, and that's why don't that's why don't Valkyrie me, don't try to save me. Like, look. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready. Right. And and I mean to just to to talk about the spectrum of death again like all all that would happen if Valkyrie got her would be um she wouldn't be spared death. She would still die. She would just be pulled back up the spectrum and be someone else, right? Yeah. True. Like like we we don't I mean we don't really know what it's like to be a thrall, but but I don't think you can go down that gradient and then come back up without being different. Like Furcate says death necessitates change. I don't think Furcate is the same Furcate that, that we knew, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I think that's made textual with, with Sarah, right? I mean, I think yeah. that's kind of the role she serves in this story yeah. um, is show that that is indeed very true. Yeah. So, so I, I don't think, I don't think that, I don't think her choosing not to be taken by Valkyrie is like a kind of suicide. I, I no. think that, I think that she has the correct understanding that, being taken by Valkyrie does not spare you death. It merely inducts you into a, a twisted kind of transformation, which you yeah. might not actually want. Yeah. I mean, 
she said throughout the story that she'd conquered death, right? Mm-hmm. Well, isn't the greatest conquering of death living a life worth living? Like, mm-hmm. I, I think I, I think there's something so wonderful and poetic about that. And she used this moment. She used the second chance, quote unquote, to live a good life. And, and, and she lived it her way. That's the beautiful thing. Like she never stopped being Ashley. She never stopped being this person. She's still the person that's going to talk big and give people shit for their performance and care <laughs> about the kind of aesthetic stuff and, and kind of kind of wax villainy in some ways. Like she's still that person, but she made better choices. And I don't know how else you conquer death than that. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. I, ultimately, what what I ended up saying in the discord was I'm sad that it had to happen. But if it had to happen, then I'm glad this is the way it happened. I agree. Um, I agree. I think that's still how I feel about it. It's a happy ending for Ashley. It, it is. I, I really think it is. Um, mm-hmm. And and I know it's going to be really hard on her friends. Uh, Kenzie is not going to react to this very well at all. Uh, Victoria is probably going to take it pretty hard, too. Um, and, and they've got some struggles ahead of them. But. I think the struggle is over for Ashley and I'm happy for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm quite emotionally there yet, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I see where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was that. Um, and then we, uh, we cut again to, uh, to a hero POV to Tristan this time. Can we, can we talk a little bit before we move on about the, the, the choices to go with the other POVs? Because, yeah. because what we've done here in this, in this story is we've seen two extremely important events for two of our characters, Byron and Ashley from the perspective of random dudes that Mm -hmm. have no real emotional attachment to them. And I, that was a choice, right? Like wild Bo chose to, to make the climax of this arc told from different perspectives. We didn't stay with Victoria. We didn't, we we do hop to members of breakthrough, but rarely like there's only two times and they're at the tail end of two of these uh, interludes. Mm-hmm. And and so my immediate question with that is, well, why we do that? Right. Because there's there's a reason. There's always a reason. Um, and, and I wanted to kind of work through this reason with you because I think I stumbled upon, you know, what it is. And, and I think it's it's a fascinating choice to me. Yeah, I think you were the one who cracked most of it. So, so you go go ahead and lay it out. Yeah. So, I mean, so we have this moment where uh, the last moment we're with Victoria in this arc is the moment in which they've realized that they've fully committed now to Path C. All the characters are together for the last time, and then they split up, and then we leave the perspective. And I think it's fascinating because, like, like I kind of hinted at with with secondhand earlier in the show seeing this from the perspective of a third party kind of sort of rips agency away from our main characters, right? Because we're not in their head. We're not seeing their choices. We're not understanding the things they're going through. We're seeing it from an outside observer. And I think this is so important because what we've done here is we've basically echoed what's going on with them, which is that they're just following instructions. Now they're not mm-hmm. making choices. They're, they're following a path that's been laid out for them by Contessa. They aren't in control anymore, really. Um, and, and I think, I think that the decision to pull away from Victoria, to remove agency of the situation from her literally by, by ripping us away from her point of view to me 
really sells the central idea that 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 by following by following the enemies we have we our 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 main characters temporarily through the existence of Contessa have lost their agency. Yeah. And I think to underscore this and to really, I I think indicate that this is, you know, the right track. The only times we return to our character point of views are, we return to Sveta after she has essentially completed her mission as, as designed by Contessa. She has, she has gotten into teacher's communication system um, or she has allowed Kenzie to do it rather. And, and kind of her part of the mission is done. Um, yeah. Then Tr- Tristan, we only catch up with Twi- Tristan a few seconds, really, before the canary music starts playing. So th- their part of their job is done. Um, every- everyone's done with their with their part of of uh, Plan C before we get back with them. Meaning, yeah. like, yeah, you're you're done. You can have your agency back. And, and I think that's I think that's exactly what's happening. And I, I think that's awesome. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the important part for these characters is not the individual choices made during the fighting because that's been laid out for them. The, the important part now is their reaction to it. The, the hard part is going to be those choices were made. We acted according to them. And now we have to live with the consequences of those choices. So we return to Sveta in the consequences of what happened. We return to Tristan in the consequences of what happened. We don't get to see them during it. We see them after. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah. It's I I don't like this. One of those things where I'm like, was that what he was trying to do? <laughs> and I don't I don't know the answer to that question. But I think regardless, it works for me. And and there's a lot of people it didn't work for. And I I get that. I do think that the Ashley death is just as emotionally satisfying, no matter which point of view we were at. I, I think one of the things I do like about um, the point of view that we did get it through is that his internal monologue like backs off to allow the scene to play out in a way it should. Like we're not getting, we're not getting, um, what's his name? I just forgot it. Spawner. Spawner. Thank you. We're not getting spawners like really inside perspective on Ashley's death as she dies. Right. Like the scene is allowed to play out without him really commenting on it narratively. And some people might say that's the point of view character backing off and that's not good, but I think it's important in that moment to just let the scene play out the way it does. Um, I think it works. Um, I think it works in every way that that I feel like the book wanted it to. I mean, I think it's the most kind of elegant, understated major character death in in a wild bow work. So I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's lots of lots of people have died in these books. Um, none of them affected me like this one did. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Because um, Taylor's alive. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, Matt. Um, yeah, so the team gradually reunites. Sveta horribly injured. The Undersiders reeling from having lost Samuel. Uh, Byron obviously put away in stasis. Everyone, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and and I mean, like, the cool thing about this is we're in Tristan's head now, but Tristan's point of view is very kind of reserved as well. And I think the, the, the thing that happens here is shell shock, right? I mean, he is, he is completely, like kind of like not even there um he's worried about his brother um they they get to hear the news about ashley through a devastated kenzie um and and he doesn't know right like he thinks like it must be terrifying he doesn't know what's the status of his brother and he can't really check right like you can't oh if i switch and he's unconscious fuck so like or he's dead and it doesn't and what happens he doesn't know so it's just like this this unknown and it's kind of completely like stripping any kind of like normal like 
personality we might see. It's just kind of this cold, shell-shocked point of view. Yeah, um, right. And it, it, I mean, this, I mean, yeah, it, it plays off of his worst, his worst moments in his life yeah. where, where, where he, where he did this on purpose <laughs> right. the last time. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's what, like, as soon as I realized what, that it was Byron that got hurt, I was like, of course, of course. Like <laughs> you look back at everything we've been doing this arc, everything with his interaction with his mother, his interaction with Furcate, like the, these people that have not forgiven him for the thing he did. And now look, it's happening again. Only this time, um, it might actually be the way that he lied about it being last time. Right. Yeah. Right. And this, and this coming after, uh, Byron was like the only person around who was kind of giving him a shoulder to lean on, uh, obviously metaphorically because he can't actually do that physically. Um, because that's just even worse that way. Yeah. But now, now even that is taken away. Yeah. Um, so poor yeah. Tristan. Yeah, poor Tristan. It's gonna be it's gonna be rough for these for these Capricorn boys. Yep. So I realized something very very belatedly, and maybe I'm just like realizing it again. Um, but anyway, the point is that the text is is still at this point going out of its way to make it ambiguous who is going to be the other death. Um, I don't think it's Byron. I, I personally think it's Tristan because if Tristan dies, then Byron suffers for a super long time. I don't want that to be the case because I'll be sad. <laughs> yeah. I'll be very, very sad. Um, it could obviously be Sveta because she's badly injured and the Harbingers want to kill her. Could be Kenzie because the book keeps telling us that she's a target. Um, could be Rain because, uh, oh yeah, also Kenzie was instrumental in beating teachers, so maybe yeah. somebody has it out for her. Could be Rain because Love Lost is kind of hanging over his shoulder still that the text has gone out of its way to remind us like that is not resolved just because <laughs> Love Lost is on their side. Yeah. Uh, could even be Victoria. I mean, that would be surprising, but could be. Um, but the point is, this is a big thing hanging over us, uh, still hanging over us. The, the fight is done, right? I mean, what we know now that the arc is done, actually. But we still have one more breakthrough member who's going to bite it, right? I mean, am I misinterpreting something? No, I mean, uh, there is that ambiguity about how she described uh, the the death of the two breakthrough people. But I, I agree with you. I think the book is leaving this a little open-ended for us. And I think, you know, your, your chocolate Byron nature is coming back again where, like, the book is kind of telling us, oh, it's Byron. And you're like, eh. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Um, but no, I, I agree that there is there is wiggle room here, and I don't think it, it's. I think the text seems to be pointing towards. Uh, here's our two. We said two, maybe three. Um, Ashley's dead. Byron's injured. There they are. Boom. Um, it, it, there could be one more. I, I'm I'm like sure it's not maybe Byron, <laughs> but that's sure, what I get for huh? yeah I, I, I'm this is the only time I've made a prediction where I didn't hedge it with like a hundred different things it's not gonna be Byron I Byron. I would not be surprised if you are correct um it, 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 it the text seems to be pushing us that way in a way that it could be manipulating us I I stake my reputation as a predictor okay which I don't I don't have a reputation so that's fine <laughs> um yeah so as they are approaching teachers I guess hideout location. Uh -huh. Victoria picks up a bunch of tinker guns. Uh, I wasn't sure what to make of this. I just kind of was like, yeah, okay. She's picking stuff up. She's done that a few times recently. Uh, I kind of glossed over it and people started theory crafting about it. And I was like, I don't know about that. Um, but uh, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, 
there was a lot of talk about this, right? And I was a little surprised too. Like I didn't yeah. really see it as anything like too crazy. Like I, I think Victoria is is being driven to escalation through severe grief. She's exhausted and she's mourning and she's so fucking done with this shit. So she just picks up a bunch of fucking guns and it's going to go fucking kill this fucking son of a bitch. Um, and, and in this moment, like the wretch is listening to her for the most part again, right? Like the wretch is holding some of these guns. It's not chucking or smashing, but it's holding them. And I think this has been some, this is not like a sudden new thing. This has been something that the text has been setting up throughout the arc that she's been asking the wretch for things. And the wretch has been more or less complying with her throughout Mm -hmm. the arc. So I think this is like just the, the cap on that central idea. Um, and I, I, I don't like, I don't think it's is some like new power she's gained now. I just think this is this is in in the moment where Victoria is kicking people's heads off and smashing through things and and picking up guns and wanting to kill people because she's grieving and and angry. Uh, the wretch is like, oh fuck fuck yeah, let's let's do this thing. Um, yeah, I, I mean that's that's basically my read as well. Like yeah, I mean you, you get a little power boost when you give in to your your violence and. Mm-hmm. And and she she just lost a friend and and she's pretty sure of it and so she's um uh in a very bad place. May, I mean maybe you could stretch it and say a place closer to a trigger event, which would mean her power would be stronger. Um, I don't know if that's I don't know if I would actually go that far, but uh yeah, it didn't strike me as being super weird anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they find teacher standing before his gateway into the Phantom Zone. <laughs> Um, for a second, we think that Contessa has actually maneuvered everyone into handing the teacher the victory. Uh, but then she tells him, no, she's done with utilitarianism. I, I love this so much. Like throughout, ever since Contessa came back in the story, we've had this kind of open question of why is she doing this? Should we take her at face value? Should we trust her? Is she just scheming? And I think in this moment we kind of see that, no, she's not. Path to victory is telling her that teacher's way is the best way for humanity. Or or as she says, so close to the best that it's indistinguishable. But the Contessa of Ward is not the Contessa of Worm. She's learned something, and perhaps that thing she learned came from our best girl, Taylor, back in that conversation she had with her uh, right when she shot her and definitely didn't kill her. Um, and, and, and like we said earlier, in this moment, teacher is surprised. Teacher's face fell a fraction. What? I gave them the best options they would be happiest with. I picked one. I'm done with getting the objective best with the ugliest path to get there. And I think you zoomed in on that sentence a lot. So I'll let you talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, especially the word, um, the phrase ugliest path to get there. Like, yeah. I, I, and I feel like it, this is me like admitting upfront. Like, I think I'm reading too much into this, but I think there's a possibility that Contessa in this moment is like viewing her power as like a literal monkey's paw where, where she's like, Every time I ask for a path, if if there's a way to kick a child on the way <laughs> to accomplishing my goal, my power will give me a, a way of making sure I kick the child. Yeah. Um. And 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 I think that is kind of the truth. Like, like it gave her it gave it, it gave them K sixty threes on the way to building their army. Yeah. Um. It, every time you know, every time she uses it in, in a combat context, she just like fucks everybody up in just the most stylish way possible. Right. It's it's not I wouldn't actually call it efficient it 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 does just seem to go out of its way to, to cause collateral damage and um and I might be I might be wrong about that but 
maybe it's true and maybe she has seen that and she's like i'm going to i'm going to take my hand off the rudder and i'm going to give other people the chance to to pick their um their their goals and we're we're, we're not going to go this path where it's just like uh again the ugliest path yeah. to, to to getting there yeah i mean it's um, it's like we spent i mean i spent the last 7 days chatting with people in our our discord a lot about path to victory about you know really examining how this power works what it does um the the inherent limitations of it and the inherent strengths of it just because we were you know arguing back and forth about different implications of it and 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 i mean the the one thing you kind of settle on is is this idea that victory is defined by the user right Mm -hmm. like path to victory is not path to the best thing it's path to the thing that the user defines and and so you know there was there's this idea that the objective best right like she is turning away from what the objective best outcome is the the book through contessa is basically telling us that teacher's way might be the quote-unquote objective best way for humanity that that what he's going to do in the long term of existence of humanity is is going to be the best thing for us but but that's that's a relative definition right like it's it's based it's based on a lot of different things and it's based on how we define the path to get there like i I used i used like gps as an example right like if you plot if i want to go to work and i use a gps and i say here's my endpoint is work take me there gps is going to route me the fastest way there but if i don't put in avoid tolls if i don't put in avoid traffic like it's just gonna go we'll just go this way and so if if you don't put in those clarifications or you're not specific enough or you don't you don't encapsulate every single clarifying factor um it's just gonna go the way that it thinks is the best way yeah right i mean it's it's she doesn't say the word utilitarian in here but but it strikes me that it has to mean something like utilitarian. Like if you're going to use the word optimal, like optimal or, or, or objective best or whatever implies something like utilitarian framework or consequentialist framework, at least where we are ranking outcomes by some like criteria of, of some, some pseudo quantitative criteria. And the thing about pseudo quantitative criteria is that, they can you, you can you can sweep a lot of stuff under the rug. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of the worst things in history have been done with the justification of the greater good, right? With sure. people, different people drawing different lines of of saying when we say the greater good, we mean the greater good for these people over here, um, and and we're gonna we're gonna pretend that this type of horrible thing that we're doing over here doesn't count against our ledger, um, and uh, yeah, and 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 it has some pretty horrific uh, horrific uh, consequences, and I. I don't know. I see it as growth that she's I, I think I was more ambivalent earlier uh, in this arc, but I've, I've kind of come around to being like, yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, th- I think our last conversation, I talked a lot about the idea that, like, why doesn't she just use use path to victory to bootstrap to get the the answer that she would think of if she had infinite time to think about it? And um, maybe that would work. Um, but like that to me i do kind of see that as being like a route down the pathway that leads to madness sure and and terrible consequences yeah i get um, that um 
or, or, or maybe objectively the best consequences, but terrible paths. Uh, so it's very interesting. Like I, 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 I'm even more confused than ever and it delights me. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's, here's how I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it all together in a nice little bow for you. Okay. How do you define victory? Because I define Ashley Swansong dying as a person who doesn't hate herself as victorious mm-hmm. and would a path to victory define it that way? Right. Like, like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's there. There are so many different things. When you say, when you say, I want this person to die or I want this person to live or I like there, there's, there's worse than death. And, and death is a spectrum, just like you've been talking about. Like there's different, there's different ways to die. Do you want to die? If, are you going to die a monster or are you going to die a person who did the right thing when I counted? Yeah. I mean, how how many, uh, how many Santa deaths is Sveta's lifetime of of suffering worth? Exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, like if, if we want to get like, like, spiritual we don't have to but if you want to get spiritual if there's if there's an existence beyond death if there's an afterlife of some sort if i don't freaking know um but does it matter does it matter what you do in your life does it matter how you live that life i don't know i'm sure we'll find out next week (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure you have books i mean these are just things that i think that some of this stuff has failed to 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 take into account and i think what contessa is doing here is she's kind of realized that she's realized that how we define these things matters um and what they've done here kind of matt is they've chosen the not best option so like shit's gonna be hard like the teacher basically says there will be moments in the future Will you wish you sided with me where you regret if you kill me here, you'll regret it. If you uh-huh. stop me, you'll regret it. And that could be true, right? Like that, that could still be true, even though it's it's not the best path, but it's not the ugliest path either. Yeah. I mean, you could very well regret it if you let him go and also regret it if you don't let him go. Yeah. Like there could there could be no 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 out. Sure. Yeah. It's totally possible. Yeah. Um. So if. If shards are the readers, is is Contessa the author, <laughs> grappling with uh, with what constitutes uh, goodness and 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 rightness? I sure. don't know. It's sure. Interesting. That yeah. that gets. I'd have to take some time and really parse that. I can't. Yeah. I can't give you an off the cuff reaction. <laughs> Just but. gonna drop that on you and then move on. <laughs> I am intrigued. Um, yeah. So they they arrest teacher, uh, and as Contessa predicted, he is bailed out by a sleeper agent. Legend is brought along for the ride. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, this is one of what we can assume are, are many fallback plans and teacher is gone. Yeah. So, I mean, there's one moment in here we have to talk about, though, where, where uh, teacher is about to step through the doorway and Contessa says, I wouldn't do that. And then she looks at Breakthrough mm-hmm. and teacher looks at Breakthrough and then he goes, yeah, OK. Um, and this is like the big, this is the big moment that the chapter kind of leaves us with, right? This is mm-hmm. the big mystery. Like, like we know in the future they've chosen the, they've chosen the, the, not the optimal objectively best path. They've chosen the path that isn't quite as ugly. Um, so things are going to get bad. Things, things are going to collapse. I think teachers write that like a lot of the systems of the, of earth Gimmel are going to start collapsing and they're going to have to do work. But the big mystery is what the hell did he see him break through that made him change his mind? <laughs> yeah. I, I, so I've seen people say 
Um, and this seems rather like simple and, and likely true, just that maybe he looked at them, looked at their expressions and was like, oh, they're just going to follow me through and kill me. <laughs> yeah, I, that is um, that's almost too simple. Like I want it to be a little bit more than that. I, I want it to be like my head went to like, oh, he like maybe he looks at rain that reminds him of of the the dream room or something or, or like he looks at Victoria yeah, yeah. and thinks about like, I don't know, like like Contessa obviously knew that just glancing at breakthrough would accomplish her goal. Sure. Um, but yeah, we don't actually know. And and I'm I mean, that could be that could be it could be as simple as that. But I'm I'm actually going to be kind of paying attention to see if we ever figure out more about that. Yeah, I mean, what we've kind of done is we've kind of pivoted the the future of the book around our main characters. Like, I think one thing we've seen throughout the story so far is that while Victoria is the most important person in our, the reader's world, she's not necessarily the most important person in the book's world, right? Um, yeah. they've, they've always kind of been, been, been players in what's going on, but never center to what's going on. And, yeah. and maybe what we're doing is we're moving into the tail end of the book and we're kind of starting to pivot our story around our protagonist and her team a little bit. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. So that, that wraps it up, Scott, that wraps up this chapter. Yeah. So do you think, uh, th- th- when, when legend disappears with teacher, um, do you think, that that immediately made me think about teacher talking to saint about how I wanted to get an opportunity to to get legend back on our side. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think this is a continuation of that idea or just a happy accident that he'll try to exploit? Oh man, I don't know. I mean, uh, I I feel like I feel like that that I feel like legend is probably going to be captured by him because he probably teleported to somewhere where he's like secure. Um. Mm-hmm. And then what happens from there? I'm not sure. Okay. But I don't think Legend's just going to be like, yeah, and then Legend came back. Yeah, well, um, but is he going to come back a good guy? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you're you're really disturbing me now because I, I don't <laughs> want that to happen. So so, so I'm going to move on to the discussion questions. So okay. I don't have to think about that. Yeah, let's move right into that there. So question. question last week was when considering important big questions, do you Sveta or do you Harbinger? Um, a lot of people seem to think that I was asking which of those choices was right. I was just asking which one you do, but ah. that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Because it's the point is to prompt discussion Indeed. and I did not clarify that. So that is fine. what a discussion question is for. Yes, it is. Discussion. I don't know if you knew that. Um, so death of the artist says that they're going to give us a hard neither. They see two sides of this argument as being founded at, Founded on orthogonal axioms. The Sveta side is deontological. I believe that X is wrong. X came from logic, therefore making decisions based on logic uh, rather than emotions is wrong. The Harbinger side is just as axiomatic on the other way through. Uh, uh, logic is good, irrationality is bad, therefore decisions, decisions made from consistent logic and ethics are good. But they're both super wrong. A good decision maker is someone who can make an emotional decision at the outset, but can weigh that decision with logic. What are my biases? Are there any factors I'm ignoring? Am I consistently violating other fervently held ethical principles? At the, at the end of the day, this is why these kind of pseudo-religious moral axioms um, and pure, pure, pure utilitarianism are both bad bases for decision making. You should weigh both and as many other frameworks as you have access to in order to just copying out and following axioms. Okay, Death of the Artist, but then... Which do, do you do? <laughs> how do you know when to stop? You can never stop. 
How do you know when to stop the weighing? You can never stop. When do you feel done? And and if you just know when you're done, then aren't you being a little bit sveta? Ooh, burn. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know how to respond to that. That's a good answer, though. I like, I mean, fundamentally, I agree with Death of the Artist, but uh, I think in, I'm, in practice, it's difficult. I'm going to have to pick at everyone's answer in a similar way so let's, right, let's, get, well, let's get things going let's pick at greckel prime who is a longtime listener first time caught off enough to respond to the question well welcome greckel prime glad to have you with us here at the 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 bleeding edge of war chapters uh, they say that I've gone through places in my life where I've been different things. Growing up until my mid-late teens, I was definitely Sveta, doing what felt right or what I believed was the most important thing, which led to a bunch of times where I refused to understand or listen to other points of view and ended up with a distinct lack of empathy. Shortly before I left for college, I got kicked out of a church and went through a bit of a depressive phase and got super harbinger and tried to think rationally and without bias about everything and ended up with me still thinking my decisions were right and not being able to understand others' viewpoints. But now facts and logic were backing me up instead of feelings, even if I wasn't aware that my facts and logic weren't weren't complete. Nowadays, I've been on hormone replacement therapy for a few months now, and second puberty has been making my emotions run wild, and it's definitely had an effect on my decision-making process. For instance, I quit a job that I absolutely despised before having another one lined up because I just couldn't take it anymore, even though that wasn't the most logical thing to do. But I try to recognize when I'm swinging too far Sveta or too far Harbinger and try to balance it out with one another. Both ways have their pluses and minuses. Hopefully that makes some sense. It does, Gruckle Prime, and I really appreciate uh, your story and, and your honesty um i think this is a, a, a tough thing for people to approach with themselves sometimes you know um, yeah i think we i think every single one of us wants to be logical in in a certain manner but has to recognize that we're we're flesh bags that yeah that are not logical a uh, lot of the time less anyone think i'm lecturing or, or something um my answer is that i i make all almost all of my important big decisions emotionally and then i spend a lot of time trying to justify them with rationalization, which is not the same thing as using logic to arrive at a decision. And like, I, I, I don't, I don't think this is good. I'm just saying this is what I have always done. Like, like, even though I see myself doing it and recognize it as an, as an issue. I just want to say that my entire life, not my entire life, my entire adult life, I've had moments where I've wanted to quit a job that I absolutely despise without having another one lined up, and I've never had the guts to do it. And and so, Greco Prime, I do kind of respect you on that. I think um, I think that's it's challenging for sure, and uh, you it is definitely sensible to line up a job first before quitting your job. But I've just never been able to bring myself to do that, and I think there's something. There's something just powerful about recognizing how unhappy something's making you that you just need to get it out of your life, even if you don't have the next thing lined up. Yeah. Um, maybe that's just coming from me. Though. No, I, I, I also admire that. My dad's done that a few times. <laughs> so I see it as an admirable quality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, to me, it shows you're willing to take a little risk and have, yeah. and have confidence that things will, will be OK. You will be all right. I, I you don't have shows to have everything lined up. I think it shows a kind of self-respect to be like, no, that was it. That was the, that was the line. Yep. I'm done. You yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. Um, V2 says, uh, neither, both. They say, I tend to analyze a problem logically and then make my final decision emotionally. Kind of like I just said that I do except backwards. <laughs> um, a, a lot of that is because it's really hard to make good decisions with massive anxiety. And I have coping mechanisms to try and deal with that. Part of it is also that I try to make the decision that will be better for me after I've made it. I like that. 
better for me doesn't necessarily mean physically better. It's concerning things like mental or physical health and self-care and plain old, I don't want to regret having made the safe decision. That's great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Very I, honest answer. I wish I was more like you, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Stelhek says, I think the Sveta Harbinger dichotomy is kind of nonsense because the vast majority of big decisions are emotional decisions. Choosing the option to get what you want can be tackled with emotion or logic, but that's not step one. Step one is choosing what what it is that you want and that can never be done with logic alone you can do all the predicated calculus in the world and it still amounts to goddamn zilch if you never make at least one value judgment even if it's just predicated calculus is pretty this is hilarious actually because i just logically convinced myself that emotions are more important than logic but in my metaphorical heart i feel that it's the other way around i ouroboros myself <laughs> <laughs> i mean Sure. All of that is correct. <laughs> yeah, I like I like still. I mean, I, yeah. I a discussion question that makes you recognize realize something about yourself is cool. Um, and I like still yeah. has a sense of humor about it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I, I like this question because like I don't I, I think these are like standing problems in philosophy. Like, like I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not expecting someone to be like, this is the answer. Like nobody knows. Nobody <laughs> knows. Right. King Bob 12. So as someone says, uh, so as someone who likes to think I would respond harbinger to something like this, the real answer is that it is very, very rare for anyone to give a true harbinger response. Mm -hmm. The truth is that humans are always going to lean towards Sveta, especially myself. A harbinger response should include little to no affection for anyone the decision may impact. Most importantly, this must include yourself and your loved ones. If the decision doesn't hit you where it hurts, where can it leave you, uh, sorry, where it can leave you destitute or crippled or, crippled or helpless, then it doesn't matter how cold your decision is. If you don't have the level of pressure on your decision, then the decision isn't between emotional and rational. It's just you deciding what impacts other people for them. Um, choosing something rational because it validates your view of yourself is just as emotional as any other emotional choice you could have. It just provides a thin veneer of false reasoning over someone who is probably just callous and unkind. Uh, if the choice doesn't co cost you something dear to your heart, it was never a choice at all. Yeah. Um, I like that last sentence a lot. I, I feel like there may be no more appropriate time of, of me to, to, for me to, 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 to not vague book and to say that like one of the like worst decisions in my life was when uh, a doctor basically said um, your, 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 the daughter in your, in your spouse's womb is going to die if it's not cut out immediately. Um, and I was like, basically one of the two parties in the room with any kind of decision-making power. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it's like horrifying because you're like, I have no idea it, it, like, why are you asking me? Right. It was like the Contessa situation where you're like, why are you asking me? Like, <laughs> you, you, you're like, like, I don't if I say yes and then my wife and child die because of my decision, that's on me. If I say no and my wife and child die because of this decision, that's on me. Yeah. Can you just please make the decision? You know, <laughs> like like and, and, and the thing was like that was a very like I, I would call Sveta where I'm just like. I can't possibly give you a rational answer to this. And, yeah. and, and yet I've never been involved in a more important decision in my life. Yeah. Um, so that's just, that's kind of in the background of a lot of my thinking and reasoning here. And I just wanted to say it out loud at some point. Yeah, no, I, I think it's important that you shared that and don't worry everyone. It, it, it turned out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It turned out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Lest anyone think. <laughs> yeah, just, um, yeah. 
All right. Uh, next up, we have Sarah Penguin, who says, as the only person who went with Sveta last week, I got to stick with the best tendril girl. I would have to question if humans can ev- even be rational. Emotions, societal expectations and the opinions of others will always play a role in decision making. And often the people who claim to be rational, who never let emotions dictate their choices, seem to be just oblivious to how their emotions play a role. Then there is the fact that different people have different ideas of what rational is based is what rational is based on their goals and life experiences. And they use Taylor as an example of someone who framed everything they did as rational, even though uh, it wasn't. Um, I like that answer a lot. Sarah Penguin, I'm with you on best tendril girl, like tendril buddies for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I think, I think rational has to be designed like defined in terms of what are your goals and, it is it is like a a, a, um, a contradiction to say what are some rational goals like you can only have rational goals to the extent that you have goals that serve your goals and your <laughs> final goals are random. Yes, basically. I agree. They are what they are. Yeah. I agree. Toast Ghost 18 says I absolutely uh, I absolutely Sveta <laughs> in the verb form, uh, which is something that I want to change about myself and move towards somewhere between the two options. I am an anxious person by nature, and when something major comes up that involves me and only me, I suffer from action paralysis and instinctively try to avoid choosing, which has led, led to significant problems in the past. That's most likely why I was frustrated with Sveta's choice. I was projecting my instinct to flee and procrastinate onto the same behavior, even though the root cause is significantly different. That being said, when other people are involved, I actually tend to pull a Victoria, reaching out to others. Uh, the choice would affect confirming, touching base, and then making that decision. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I Victoria too. <laughs> yeah, the hidden option three is Victoria. Yeah, yeah, which is kind point. of what kind of what Contessa did from a certain yeah, point of view. She does. She does reach out. I like that. All right. Next up, Nugget Blaster 69. When making big decisions, I tend to think logically rather than emotionally, so I suppose that would make me more of a harbinger, although I hope I'm not quite as cold as he is. Personally speaking, I would rather decide based on reasoning that I can logically compute rather than feelings, because my feelings could completely change as time goes on, whereas logic tends to yield more steady results as long as you're working with accurate information. Also, I think logical decisions are easier to defend. It's easier to explain my thought processes behind a decision rather than just telling someone I did what felt right. Basically, feelings are hard to explain and understand, whereas logic typically isn't. Uh, I like that answer. I have to ask Nugget Blaster 69 though. Were you using logic or emotion when you named yourself Nugget Blaster 69? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just kidding. I love that name. It's really great. I, I do too. I mean, it's, I mean, it, this is an interesting comment because I feel like um, uh, emotional reactions are, th- are thoughts. Like, like, like you, can, yeah. you can untangle them and, and there is a logic to them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are the best logic. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, that's kind of a stub of a thought that I don't know where to take, but um, yeah, I see what yeah. you mean though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Blasted platypus says I'm a harbinger in the sense that I like to think my decisions are based in logic, but I'm actually driven mostly by my own personal hangups and biases. Oh, <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah. That's uh, really, okay. that's really wonderful. Yeah. It's a little stealth, stealth burn. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, Hero of Old Iron says, when it comes to business and career-related decisions, full-on harbinger. That doesn't automatically discount the times when I'll help someone else out or make a few aesthetic choices I enjoy at some minor cost. But at the end of the day, I have to think of myself first, and those decisions are made with the intent that they'll pay off down the line. Even if I wanted to be more altruistic in that sphere of life, the best way to do it is in a position of strength to begin with and have lots of resources to help other others. Otherwise, my personal life, Matt's Harbinger, a.k.a. Humanism. That's, it's a Matt's Harbinger, Matt. It's you. <laughs> I don't think Sveta is kind of... I don't think Sveta's kind of logic versus emotions outlook is the kind of thing that people keep after healthy adolescence, which, granted, she didn't have. While she does make some good points, it's hard not to see it as more do virtue ethics and hope things turn out all right. I think even if she doesn't want to admit it, Sveta and the rest of our unambiguously good guys do the humanist thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like this. This is very... Uh cool answer I'm the, thing think about I, this. the thing that i like most about this is is the recognition that kind of you are a different kind of decision maker depending on what the kind of decision is right yeah like like uh, hero of old iron says business and career related decisions i'm absolutely logic i don't want to put any emotion into it i think they would they would probably be the type of person that never quits a job without another job lined up um which is me as well um but but i think that's so accurate to life because some decisions you want to make with emotions and some you don't and that's just kind of the way life works sometimes right i mean i guess kind of the the reason for my personal anecdote was was to say like the more critical a decision is to you as a human the less likely you're going to be able to apply any kind of rationality to it Yeah. yeah um which actually kind of sucks because those are by definition the most important decisions and the ones (laughs) when you probably want to make the right choice right right um Like, like, and be sure that you've made the right choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So thanks. Thanks. Uh, existence. You're like fucking us over there. Seriously. And then finally, deep score in prisoner says logic is lovely, but all decisions are inherently emotional. Everything from epic moral quandaries about which terrible future to choose to which socks to wear ultimately comes down to an emotional response. The individual has toward the results, a seemingly logical utilitarian choice about how many people live in one scenario versus another is based on an emotional attachment to human beings. If you didn't care, why would you make any choice at all? Team Sveta. And, and that's true. Like, like that you don't logically arrive at your final preferences. Yeah. 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 Totally. Team Sveta. Cool. Woo. All right. Hey, hey, everyone. This is really interesting. Me and Scott independently came <laughs> up with the same discussion question this week. We did. I'm yeah. so proud of us. It was bound to happen eventually, I guess. Yes. Discussion question is, what is the most impactful character death in written fiction? So here's the thing about this question. It's going to be really tough to do it without spoiling uh, like a, a, few thousand, a few thousand people on a bunch of books they haven't read. Yeah. Um, so what we're going to do is if, you're, if your death that you have picked is outside of these two books and you're answering in the Reddit thread... Please spoiler your answer um, just in case anyone is in the Reddit thread uh, sees it. And then when we are looking for answers to pull for this question, we will do our best to not like uh, spoil something that isn't general known like things like if it's like a very famous death in a very famous book. um, I think I'd feel a lot more comfortable about spoiling that. But if it's like something obscure that most people might not know about, uh, we might read around your answer. Yeah, Um, I think I think there was a favor and put the title of the thing outside of the spoiler. Yes. yes. So that because it's not really a spoiler that a death happens in a thing. Um, Yeah. And then at least at the very least, we can read the work that you referenced. 
Yeah. Um, the name of it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Uh, well, that's all we have for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via our email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or our Twitter account at gotwormpod. You can follow my personal Twitter at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at uh, more Harbinger Dale. Yes. I really dropped not, the ball on that one. It's okay. They can't all be home runs. <laughs> uh, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find all the shows on the Doof Media Podcast Network over at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you'll find Deep Impact, the deep dive into Pact. Um, that's where you'll find Do the Right Thing, a podcast about writing. It's where you'll find the Doofcast. It's where you'll find mm, What You Say, our new podcast about the OC. Holy crap, we got a lot of shows. Just go over there and pick the ones you like or listen to them all. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and uh, if you like any or all of our shows and you want to support them, please consider donating to patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month, uh, although you may want to head over there and check out the higher tiers now that we've moved them around and mm -hmm. changed things, made made the made some of the tiers a bit more appealing. Um, supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art and costume contests, uh, uh, hangout sessions with me, Scott, and possibly some other doofers, access to live streams of our recording sessions uh, like this one, um, our, our exclusive content, our Discord chat, um, all kinds of cool stuff. So go check that out. Uh, and while you are on uh, patreon.com, make sure you type slash Wildbow and donate to Wildbow as well, because this is his world. We're just playing on it. In it. On it? We're Within playing it. on the world? In, inside it. Um, special thanks this week to new patrons, uh, Bidoofs at the $1 level, Team Tay Tay, excellent name, <laughs> um, Rob B and Daniel M. Uh, doof dancers at the five dollar level that's our new category and i think we have our australians to thank for coming up with that name yeah i don't, I don't remember why i well i think i think in australia doof means something completely different yeah um, isn't it like a it's like, it's like a, a concert <laughs> but it's like a rave I, I don't think like a raving is dancing but well well you know what Australian culture is a mystery. You know, Elliot and Ruben know what they're talking about, yeah. so we'll trust them. Maybe they'll answer on the next Q&A session. <laughs> um, but yeah, new doof dancers, Savannah Jones and Dravonio at the at the $5 level. Uh, new doof troop members at the $10 level, Abigail H., uh, Mark Andre M., and In Case. Uh, doof warrior, Zeke Aaron. Thank you, Zeke. Uh, Supreme leader, doof at the $45 level, Yosef. Guys, holy crap. Thank you so much. Uh, it's amazing. I think a lot of uh, some of this is in response to uh, a lot of these were upgraded people that are in response to the changes we made on Patreon. And, and thank you so much for uh, showing us that we were kind of on the right path with some of these changes. But uh, wow, guys, um, Matt, I don't know. What, say nice things to them. I don't know what else to say. You guys are awesome. Um, all of you are, are super awesome. We really, really appreciate this. Um, and we're going to, we're going to deserve this. <laughs> we're going to try our best to deserve this. We're yes. going to earn this. Earn um, speaking this. of character deaths, <laughs> but no written fiction, written fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And uh, if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay, guys. Uh, there are tons of ways to help us out. You can share this podcast with everyone you know on all social medias, including the fantastically valuable Tumblr. It's worth so much money. You should you should be on it and share it on there. Um, or you it's can head on over to uh, to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and leave us a rating and a review. Once again, we have no new reviews to feature this week, so... Uh, so come on, guys. We got some new ratings on on iTunes. I did see our rating number went up, Matt, but no no written reviews. So uh, hopefully yeah. we'll get some of those next week. Well, thanks to those of you who clicked that five star button. Yeah. And that ends arc fifteen dying. Next week we enter a new arc and a new part of the story. So check back next Wednesday for our coverage of the first few chapters of arc sixteen from within. Matt, I remember to change the outro. <laughs> Thank you. Are you proud of me? I appreciate that greatly. <laughs> You're welcome. It really smooths out this ending. Woo!